Christmas greetings and blessings, everyone. This is Cheryl, and I'm so pleased to be here to welcome you to Tara and Rama's Saturday afternoon program, the true planetary and galactic history, history, and true history, history of Nasara. Happy Christmas, Eve's Eve. I wish you an amazing holiday, and we're going to go ahead and anchor Christ consciousness here today as we do our opening prayers and opening activations and meditation. I do wish to remind you, please put on your calendar for tomorrow, Christmas Day, at 3 o'clock, your local time. Lord Maitreya gives a blessing. I always put it in my phone, use my alarm, and set my alarm five minutes before uh, the 3 o'clock hour, because it is at 3 o'clock your local time. And all you need to do is set your intention to receive, to open your crown, to receive the blessings that come through for a full hour. Now, ideally, it's wonderful if you can sit and receive at that time. I know that many of us will be involved in family festivities. So my intention is to, again, receive it 100%, every all of the blessings at that time. And I recommend that since we always do our work, for the planet as well, that you do the I am prayer. I am my I am presence, and I am one with the I am presence of all humanity. I am one with all my family members and loved ones, and so on. We'll do that in just a second. And invite them in. Invite them to receive this at the same time. Well, I think you would be right next to Cheryl? Yes, dear. yours. We can hear you. you got to mute your phone, Rainbird. Oh, I'm so sorry. I apologize. I forgot. Okay. There uh, okay. I'll try and remind everybody um, at the end, but let's go ahead and go into our heart center and call forth our divine presence. So going into the heart center, to the sacred portal, to all that is. We call in the full and complete mergence with our soul, with our higher self, with our monad, with our muddy I am presence, and all of our multidimensional being through to our God presence and goddess presence. See yourself in your pillar of light, so magnificent and ground. It's always there. We're just bringing our attention to it. See, sense, and feel it, fully connected to source, to the sacred heart of our Mother, Father, God, and fully connected to the sacred heart of Mother Gaia, her crystalline heart to the center of the earth. And as you see it, you may experience the beautiful violet and gold coming in, in transmuting anything that is left 
that is unlike Christ consciousness and bringing in the gold of eternal peace, infinite abundance, illumination, enlightenment, wisdom, and Christ consciousness as we have to merge with the Christ mind here today. Expand your pillar and see, sense, and seal an image of the planet Mother Earth in your heart center as we call forth everyone across the planet to join us. So we call forth through our prayer once again, I am my I am presence. As my I am presence, I am one with the I am presence of all humanity. I am one with every man, woman, and child. I am one with all my family members and loved ones. I am one with all that is. And just feel yourself connecting heart to heart. This is such an important time of connection. And this whole year is about connection as well. So let's connect heart to heart. High heart to high heart. Cosmic heart to cosmic heart. Connecting with the cosmic heart of all that is. If we allow the platinum light of unity consciousness to join the violet and the gold. See it in through and around you and in through and around the planet. As we welcome for everyone, all of our soul extensions, planetary and galactic, to receive all that we receive. All of our ancestors, all of our genetic lineage, our ancestral lineage, all the generations past and forward, our spiritual lineage, our soul families and soul pots. We welcome for everyone, all of our guides and teachers, our healing teams, our beloved guardian angel, our beloved twin flame our Ascension Council and Mission Council. We welcome all the kingdoms, the plant kingdom, the tree kingdom, the mineral kingdom, the animal kingdom, the bird kingdom, the elemental kingdom, the fairy kingdom, all of the kingdoms of nature, the whales, the dolphins, the unicorns, and all magical kingdoms. <clears throat> we welcome as well all of the realms of the angels, from the angels and archangels through to the cherubim and seraphim, and all archangel or all angelic healing teams and healing and healers. We welcome the ascended masters, the Brotherhood of Light, the Sisterhood of the Rays and Rose, the Order of Melchizedek, the Radiant Ones, all of the enlightened masters, all divine mother emissaries and divine father emissaries, all of the planetary and cosmic hierarchy of light, and all ascended master healers and healing teams. We welcome all of our friends from the Galactic Federation of Light, all those beings of light that we work so regularly with, from Arcturus, from Pleiades, from Sirius, from Andromeda, from Chiron, and from from beyond, from Venus, and all cosmic galactic universal healers that can be of service. We welcome the assistance of the entire company of heaven.
asking Mother, Father, God to overline all that we do and magnify, magnify, magnify it 999 trillion times 999 trillion times in alignment with divine will and divine law. We call forth all of the rays, all of the flames, all universal laws and ascension waves. And with every energy and frequency, every prayer and invocation, every blessing, every grace, every dispensation, every activation, we ask that it be received for one and all through every cell, chakra, meridian, layer of our work field, multidimensionally, on a conscious, subconscious, superconscious level as well. And we ask to easily and effortlessly digest and assimilate, ground and anchor, integrate and embody all that we receive with the greatest of ease and grace and joy and peace and bliss and ecstasy, serenity and tranquility, balance and equilibrium without resistance on any level, without discomfort on any level, without fear on any level, and love and light and laughter. We call in all, <coughs> all those in our circle of support. From the very first name that created it, to every man, woman, and child, every family member and loved one, every pet, every animal, every friend, every neighbor, every community member, each and every business and and, and group and organization, each and every corporation, uh, each and every institution, each and every nation, and all militaries and all governments as we call forth the highest frequencies of transformation in Christ consciousness into the governments of every single nation of the U.S. and every single nation across the planet through their legislative aspect, through every legislature, every Congress, every parliament, the U.S. Senate, the House of Representatives, and all of their advisors, as we ask for the, all laws to be filled with the violet and gold light to be transmuted and all laws considered and enacted only reflect divine love, divine law, divine justice, divine governance, divine government in heaven on earth. We ask that the same take place that all the rays, flames, universal laws, and ascension waves flood through the executive offices of each and every nation, each and every president and prime minister, and have his head of state, each vice president, um, each cabinet post and cabinet member, especially the Department of Defense, the Department of State, the Department of Justice in each nation, as we call forth that all decisions be made only based on divine love, divine law, divine justice, divine truth, divine governance, divine government in heaven on earth. They call for it the same for the judiciary aspect of each government, each and every court of law, the highest court of the land in each and every nation, all international courts, the U.S. Supreme Court in all of its cases and decisions, each and every court, each and every uh, judge, each and every grand jury and jury, each and every case, each and every defendant, each and every prosecutor, each and every situation, each legal 
case and legal decision, and we ask that it be truly reflecting divine law, divine justice, divine love, divine governance, divine government, and heaven on earth. And we call in everything else in our circle of support, every man, woman, and child, and their health and their well-being, and their, um, to ensure that they are recognizing the Christ consciousness within themselves and the Christ consciousness within each and every other human being on the planet. As we call for total transformation at this Christ to mass time, the mass Christ consciousness activation we call forth now. And so we call in all of the energy around the holidays, everything that we've experienced in December through to the new year, and uh, whether it's the 12-12 or a specific um, Holy Day or Hanukkah or Kwanzaa or all the energies around Christmas and every other holiday, we call it into our collective cup of consciousness for the transformation of the planet and for the anchoring of heaven on earth. And we ask Gaia to receive all that we receive through her chakras and meridians and layers of her work field multidimensionally, through every chakra, every meridian, every layer of her auric field multidimensionally, through all the ley lines and song lines, through every part of the grid system, the love grids, the light grids, the unity grids, all of the multidimensional grid system, and through every portal and vortex and monument and sacred site, every place of power, every stargate, every city of light. As we continue up this amazing spiral of evolution at this most sacred and holy time of these holy, holy days, As we anchor Christ consciousness along with Mother Gaia and we see this golden globe, gold filled with the golden light of Christ consciousness, bringing forth peace on the planet, bringing forth goodwill, harmony amongst all people, the recognition that we are all divine. The recognition that we are all one. Just amazing awakenings we call forth for one and all at this time. And we call forth all of the gifts of this holy time. And all of the gifts of Christ consciousness. The activation and gift within every mind, every soul every heart, every body of compassion, compassion toward oneself, compassion toward all people. Again, in the recognition that we are one, the activation of unity consciousness, that there is no separation, there is no separation from source, there is no separation from each other, that we are truly one and that we all 
have this activated within our hearts and souls and minds and our bodies, bringing the cellular memory to Christ consciousness, bringing every man, woman, and child to the realization there is no separation that has just been an illusion and that we are one and we see each other as one. We see each other through the eyes of God, Goddess. And we call for the gift of love. And the beautiful pink and golden light of love activating again the ascension energies through every man, woman, and child. Love without conditions. Love that is eternal and overflowing because that is who we are and the recognition of who we are as love. We call for the Christmas gift of truth, including the truth of who we are that recognition that we are divine beings having a human experience. We call for it the gift of forgiveness, the ability to let go because we are one, because we understand that everything has been an illusion And there is no need, if we are loved, to hold any frequency less than that in our energy field. We call for the Christmas gift of harmony. Harmony amongst all people. Harmony within ourself of mind, body, and spirit. And through the Christmas music, May it fill every heart, every soul, every mind with the remembrance of that harmony. We call for the Christmas gift of joy. 2024 is meant to be a year of increasing joy. And we call for this gift for ourselves and for every man, woman, and child to experience divine joy regardless of what appears to be going on in the screen of life, regardless of the other feelings that may come up to be cleared, to be able to experience divine joy in each moment and to live in the moment, live in the now, live in the present. And through our presence, be a great gift to the world. And we call forth the Christmas gift of abundance, the abundance of every good thing, the abundance of health for ourselves, our loved ones, and for every man, woman, and child. The perfection of our health physically, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually, and energetically as well. As our energy is transformed, as our energy is uplifted, 
as our energy is raised into a crisis state, the state of our I am presence and our solar golden light bodies, and the abundance of all good things, all of the funds that we need, all of the money that we might need, at least under these circumstances, until that is transformed completely. The funds that we need to enjoy our lives, to live fulfilling lives, to fulfill our purpose and our mission, and to have our needs, our wants met in divine order for our being. We call this them for one and all. And the abundance of happiness and friends and connections and loved ones and healthy relationships. And we call in the gift of Christ consciousness, the Christ in mind, the divine wisdom, divine thoughts going through our head continuously without any interruptions from the ego, without any interruptions that are caused by the maya, by the illusion. We ask to think only thoughts of love, be filled only with the energy of love, with the feelings of love, 24-7, and that we are so overflowing with love that we can't help but overflow that love and extend it to others in each and every transaction, each and every situation, each and every relationship, each and every conversation, each and every word and thought and feeling and exchange and emotion. For we are love, and love is all there is. Let that be the lesson for Christ Mass this this day. Let that be the lesson for our solstice that we are one, we are unified, separation is an illusion, and that we are divine, we are love, we are one with the Christ mind, we are our Christic being, our Christ itself. We are our mighty I am presence, our God presence, Goddess presence. And we are co-creating with God, co-creating with source, heaven on earth right here and right now. So as my teacher Zorazil would say, live heaven. And that is my wish for you this Christmas. This Christ man, that is my wish for everyone across the planet. So let's call in Mother Gaia. 
let's call in our angel Sam Lafon to help us to anchor the golden light is so so bright again along with the violet still working with us the transformational energy of this new golden age and we give thanks for this opportunity to serve once again to be the bridge between heaven and earth, to be the anchor for the new golden age, and to be the open door that no one can shut. As we live Christ consciousness, breathe Christ consciousness, activate Christ consciousness in others, just see that golden light across the planet continuing to grow with each and every breath that we take. For we are here to anchor that, and that is what we are doing. So happy Christ Mass to everyone. Wishing you the most wonderful holy days. Each and every day. Make every day a holy day. We thank you here today for your service in anchoring Christ consciousness individually and collectively. And we are loving Christ consciousness. We fulfill it in every breath, in every word, in every thought, in every belief, in every action that we take every communication that we have. I'm going to invite you to join us tomorrow evening. There is no call. There's no ascension meditation and activation call for um, Monday. Christmas Day is the only day that I truly take off. And we we will meet tomorrow, Christmas Eve, Um, We will begin our meditation at 9.15, so we're going to start the call at 8.45 Eastern, 5.45 Pacific Time. We'll have some greetings, and we'll have greetings from Tarn Rama. But we're going to start our meditation at 9.15 or 6.15 Eastern Time. Please join us for our Christmas celebration. We have some work to do with the Masters and some anchoring of heaven on earth and some Christmas celebration as well. The phone number to dial, the main number that we use, is area code 408-660-2224. I'm sorry, I said 408, didn't I? Uh, it's 480-480-660-2224. The access code is 946-7441-POUND. 946-7441-POUND. We'll start at 845, start our meditation at 915. We'll see how long we go, whether it'll be a full call or not. Um, I trust my granddaughter will be with me. 
And um, in any case, I want to remind you that you can get on. I have local calls, local phone numbers. I have international phone numbers. Uh, You can get on through the computer and through the app, freeconference.com. And um, we look forward to celebrating with you again tomorrow. You can email me for any extra information at CherylCroaching at AOL.com, C-H-E-R-Y-L-C-R-O-C-I at AOL.com. But I'm going to get back to my family gathering, and I wish you a most amazing, amazing Christmas filled with infinite blessings, filled with magic and miracles that the Christmas spirit brings. Can we call forth the spirit of Christmas in every man, woman, and child as Christ consciousness, as unconditional love and acceptance and harmony and peace throughout the world? I love and honor you all. With that, we're going to acknowledge Tower and Rama and their divine service and Rainbird and her divine service. And just uh, my love is with you always. Uh, we will see you um uh, before the new year, we'll be gathered once again, and again, we'll have a call on Christmas Eve and not Christmas Day for the Ascension calls, and remember to tune in tomorrow, 3 p.m., your local time to receive Lord Maitreya's blessings that come for an hour. Just set your intentions, set your intentions to invite everyone that's at your gathering, and um, and just allow yourself to tune in throughout that hour to uh, really accept and receive. So infinite blessings to all, love and gratitude, and uh, an exceptionally blessed Christmas to all. With that, I'm going to pass the talking stick over to Rainbird. So have an amazing holiday. Merry Christmas, everybody. Thank you, Cheryl. Merry Christmas to you, too. And enjoy your family. It's so special that you get to be there. So lots, lots of gratitude for your divine service. And, uh, yeah, and that'll be Christmas Day when Maitreya is coming. We'll be doing his blessing at 3, our local time, 3 p.m., our local time. So I'm here to do the housekeeping as we are listening to the radio program. It's all of us that make it happen. And uh, so each week we need, for the month of December, $305 each week. And we are working on the month of December, and we are needing $868.55 to be complete with December by New Year's, and that'd be awesome. So uh, here's how we make that donation to our account at BBS Radio. Go into your heart space, see what is yours to give, and then go to bbsradio.com and look for the uh, schedule for Radio Station 1 and Radio Station 2, either one or both. (laughs) So on Radio Station 1, on the 8 o'clock hour, you'll find a listing on the schedule for Thursday night at the 8 o'clock hour, a night at the roundtable with the panel. And as you click on that icon there, it takes you directly directly to our account with CBS Radio. And then on Fridays, the hard news on Friday nights, the Tara and Rama 
is also on Radio Station 1 at the 8 o'clock hour on Friday. So you'll see that. You can click on that icon, and that takes you to our account with CBS Radio, so we make that donation. And then for this program, it's on Radio Station 2, listed at the 3.30 hour, and these are all Central Times, as they're in Texas. So, um, yeah, click on that icon there and make that donation there as you wish. And, again, just use your bank card. And that's easy peasy, very simple. Thank you for taking that action. We're so grateful for all of you who contribute and for all the ways that you show up in your lives and contribute. We're grateful for that, too. So lots of gratitude all around. Um, so we're also assisting Tara and Rama with their needs. And this week, they need $200 for their living expenses. And that'll cover the cat food, the cat litter, the the gas, and everything they need. So um, not a lot of that. <laughs> and here's how you do it. You, to make a contribution to Tara and Rama, you can go to the web address, which is rainbowroundtable.net. There on the homepage, you'll see the menu bar at the top. It'll be on the right-hand side, a donate link that takes you directly to the Rainbow Roundtable PayPal site. And the other uh, connection will be on the updates. If you click on the menu grid or the link there, you can get, get, go directly to that PayPal site. And also, if you're on another device that has the menu grid, just click on that, and it's near the bottom of the list that drops down. It's like next to the last thing on the list. So that's how you get that link. You'll find it no matter where you go. So take that action, and as you use the friends option, you need this mail this email address, and here it is: Koran K O R A N nine 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 at hotmail dot com. And so, as you gift to that email address, that makes it a friends and family option, and we're grateful that you choose that. Either way is perfect. We're grateful for all your donations. Um. So there you go. That's how you access the friends option. And if you uh, are sending something, let Tara and Rama know. They're, the email for contacting Rama is Koran999 at Comcast.net. And the mailing address is as follows. Rom D. Berkowitz, R-A-M-D Berkowitz, B-E-R-K-O-W-I-T-Z, Post Office Box 280280. And that's in Santa Cruz, New Mexico, 87567 is the zip code. I'll say it again. Santa Cruz, New Mexico, 87567. And I want to wish everybody a very Merry Christmas and a celebration of the solstice. Let it be all about love <laughs> and love all around. So, um, and peace. <laughs> So I'm passing this talking stick, and it is full of love and peace. It's a very beautiful talking stick with all the the rays on it, and um, uh, very powerful. So greetings, Tara. Here comes this talking stick. Welcome. Greetings, everyone. Thank you, Cheryl. Thank you, Rainbird. 
Thank you, everyone, for being here. We are so grateful for all that you do to help us and to help this radio stay on the air. Um, Thank you, everyone. Yes. Merry Christmas. And to the ones that we are sharing good words and wise wisdom that's you know our our for instance this one here mm. this is two hours and five minutes and uh cryon Lee Carroll mm. is not here yet he's joined by Greg Braden and some other folks. Bruce Lipton, Dr. Bruce Lipton, Lynn McTaggart, Dr. Todd. I gotta get a magnifying glass there. Ovakitis. And V. Carroll and Dr. Rowan McCarty. Dr. Roger Nelson, Professor Carla Ventura, Professor Constantin. Korotkov, Peggy Phoenix, Dubrow, and many more. And this is uh, all cultures and ancient traditions talk about our being far beyond matter. (laughs) That's quite a statement, everybody. It's true. (laughs) The one field, and the number one is not spelled out, it's just the number one, the one field, quote-unquote, using the scientific tools of the 21st century, examines this assumption through interwoven storylines, the life stories and research of groundbreaking figures in the study of consciousness and scientific experiments, supervised by research institutes and scientists worldwide. Can spirit be measured? Is there a field that connects everything? Yep. Can we use consciousness to influence our lives, our bodies, and our environment? Beyond genes or environmental limitations into which we were born. A groundbreaking, extraordinary new film with leading experts. And I read all the names. This is a film. Okay, so we're going to get to listen. I just wanted to say, um, I got a text message from Rosa from Palestine in East East Jerusalem. Bethlehem is a ghost town at this time because of the IDF in Israel. And normally it's like a very busy, bustling place at Christmas and she asked us to put Bethlehem in the circle of support. This is part of the West Bank, and it's a bigger story than I know how to get into, but all of it is going to come out. <laughs> As the song goes, the birthplace of a king. Yes. Yeah. And the quantum field, what we're listening to, this is, this is what I, the Akash. 
I call it the force, because it is sentient, it is conscious, it will speak to you, and it, it is part of every living energy, because life, the universe, and everything interacts with everything else. We're entangled. This is the thing that is so awesome. Just listen to the oneness. That's what I keep being told by animals and people. <laughs> <laughs> Lots of animals. <laughs> yeah. And people, we're all here. There we go. Five years old, I had been given an electrical toy for my birthday, and I didn't like the toy. But I took the wires out of the toy, and I walked to a wall plug, and I put the wires into the wall plug, and held on. Burned my body. My face was burnt. My eyelashes, my eyelids, my veins were burnt. My hands were burnt, and I couldn't speak. waiting for the medical people to come there were other people in my room my mother told me no one was in there but I could see them they were people that were helping to heal my body that were not of this world not very old six eight nine years and my grandfather uh, I asked him where do the where do our thoughts go when we die I was just like, I couldn't understand. Where's our thoughts go? I remember how he looked. I don't remember what he said, but I remember how he looked at me. I could see that... Good question.
And as I was playing it, I, I went, it's like I came out of my body. I went into another, another period. And I was still playing the piece, but there was a chamber orchestra around me. And this was like a couple of hundred years ago. I remembered, I remembered playing there. layers and layers of reality coming into this place I could feel my body filled with this light and I could feel this impulse of infinite love it was excruciatingly divine do you believe in this? (laughs) (laughs) there are people who were so called spiritual people And they would talk these beautiful words of spirit, you know. But even as a kid, you could see that they didn't live any of the words. So I really shied away from spirit. I thought that that's not true. But science. I'm not spiritual, right? Until this moment. And I realized, oh, my God, where do I come from? The stars. Listen, my background, I'm an engineer. This is what I did for 40 years, 43 years of my life. It's extremely logical. It's very 3D. And and everything fits in a puzzle that makes sense. I love that. When I started stepping into the esoteric, all of a sudden there were invisible things that I could not explain that did not fit into the puzzle. Three years apart, two men 40 years apart in age. Both of them had given the same phrase. There's a magnetic master named Cryon who wants to get a hold of you. It was on the tape. I heard it with my 3D ears. All I could do, and I did it without anybody around, was sit in a chair and say, Okay, are you there? And nothing happened except I cried. receiving information from a very high intelligence given the name Kryon. The first books that were giving information was the way to inactivate a virus with magnetic. And what was amazing to me is that what was written in the book was describing exactly the types of experiments I was doing at USC with the AIDS virus. And that was rather mind-blowing. We just completed an incredible seven days tour all over Israel with an international group of over 300 people from over 35 countries. From Angola, Australia, Austria, Belgium, Brazil, Bulgaria, Canada, Chile, Colombia, Denmark, Ecuador, 
France, Germany, Ireland, Israel, Italy, Mexico, Netherlands, New Zealand, Nicaragua, Norway, Poland, Portugal, Russia, Singapore, Spain, Switzerland, Thailand, United Kingdom, United Arab Emirates, Uruguay, and the United States. I'd like to call Mr. Lee Carroll. You're interviewing for the first time an esoteric channeler, which almost nobody believes is real. When I speak about Kryon says this and Kryon says that, you know, this sounds really strange to people. So I just wanted to know. As an engineer, you have to understand there was a bridge to cross. My wife at the time, she took me to a channeler. I didn't want to go, but it was her birthday, so I went. This man sat in front of me and did basically what I do today. I laughed. I didn't believe it, but it was recorded. Three years later, she said, there's another guy I want you to see. And I said, no. She said, look, it's only going to be 15, 20 minutes. Come on. So I went and I didn't like it. And I told her never again. And then I got to thinking about something. And that is I heard them both say something. It was interesting. They both said the word cryon. Greetings, dear ones. I'm cryon of magnetic service. And so now we are in Tel Aviv. In front of over 900 souls. Is the man in the chair pretending? Or is there something here? I want you to take a moment and look at the reality that is before you now. Listening to a man in a chair and you're told it is the voice from beyond. There is always the question, is it real? Can humans find a time when they will allow space for what they don't believe is possible? It's not going to take long before your scientists start to see what I'm going to be calling the field. The field is a benevolent, harmonious vibration. If you harmonize with it, with your consciousness, you activate your cellular structure. Those who could totally and completely harmonize with the field can control physics. We sit in the southern part of Israel with a view that is amazing. And we're almost at the beginning of the tour. Because that's what we said originally, didn't we? We said to you, no matter what you see in the next few days, look for God inside. Can you do this, really? Really? I was born a sensitive kid. 
I was always aware of that there was something out there. About the age of 40, I was walking on Harrow on the Hill. We lived in London then. Halfway up the hill, suddenly it's like somebody sticks a Cuban cigar in my back. And it's hot. And it's like burning. Even the dog stopped. And he looks at me, I look at him and go, oh, something's happening. When you light gas, you have this whoosh. And it's lit. All at the same time. That's how it felt. I became within 30 seconds an electro hypersensitive. I suddenly have the feeling of like moving fields around my body. So I went up, sat quietly under a tree and I started playing with my hands with what I could actually feel. And that was the beginning. You feel hot, cold, tingling, movement, blood flow. You can be pulled, you can be pushed, you can be affected from hundreds of meters. It is not connected to distance. It's the ether, the field. fingers. We all light beings. We all emanate photons all the time. So we are merging light coming from your fingers in electromagnetic field. I invented this instrument about 20 years ago. This system designed for doctors. They can detect very detailed analysis of human condition. My name is Konstantin Korotkov. I'm a scientist, professor in quantum physics, biophysics, laser physics, atmospheric physics, cosmic physics, medicine, constructing different instruments, more than 200 papers published in peer-reviewed journals, 11 books translated to many languages. So, of course, I was pure materialistic. My name is Bruce Lipton. I started out as a young child with a Russian Jewish father in the United States in the McCarthy period. When I grew up in that McCarthy period, no matter how much they were against Russians and Jews, Albert Einstein was a hero of the world. And he was a Jew, and so Albert Einstein was my hero. That led me into science. I ended up teaching in a medical school and I was teaching the conventional science of genes control your life. And this is an experiment that I did that changed my whole life. I have 50,000 genetically identical cells in a Petri dish. All the cells came from the same parent. I split the cells into three different Petri dishes. I changed the environment in each of the dishes. In environment A, the cells form muscle. In environment B, the cells form bone. In environment C, the cells form fat cells. Now you're left with a question. What controls the fate of the cells? 
the answer is not the genes. They were all exactly the same. The only thing that was different was the environment. But at this time, which is back in the early 70s, all the scientific world was so wrapped up in genes that when I tried to show my experiments, my colleagues looked at it and said, no, that's, you know, there's just an artifact. It's not real. I left the system. I knew I was teaching the wrong information, that genes do not control things. Next one. We had this experiment in Saramon, and idea was to see whether we can detect influence to people from different parts of the world. We had five cameras. All those cameras were synchronized with our scientific instruments. All experiments was done in blind way. So people did not know at which moment they start to influence. There's layers around the body and they go from one millimeter from the skin and out to a certain field around the body. Between the skin and the edge of that field, there's a lot other more fields. When I start off by almost touching and then I move slowly backwards, I am looking for the field that gives me the strongest sensation in the palm of the hand. When I find the right field, that field will start pulsing. Now, the pulse to me is just about the most mystical thing in the world because I have no idea what the pulse is. This sensitivity exists in all children up to the age of three. And then conditioning, and I'm big, you're small. I'm smart, you're stupid. I tell you how the world is. Yeah, but that weight, no, 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 no. I tell you how the world is. What I do, I believe anybody can do. I got 20 years of practice, but you can all do it. There's no mystery here. Different holes, they are related to different dysfunctions of the body. Before, it was many holes, and after, become much more rounded. There's no doubts that it was really clear effect. My name is Trum Aronson. I am a Moxiteka, a closed, open-hand practitioner. I left the system, and I started to study quantum physics. In Newtonian physics, we say everything is mechanical. And then we created the picture of an atom, like a little solar system with electrons spinning around. That's a mechanical picture created from a mechanical belief. Nobody saw the atom. That was just a, an idea. But around 1895, they started to say, what makes up an atom? And they started to find there's something inside the atom. Oh, well, there are electrons in the atom. There's a nucleus in the atom. They said, oh, smaller particles. But then, as they started to look at, so what makes up an electron? What makes up a proton or a neutron? They found out inside of those things there's nothing but energy. The universe is made out of energy. The physicists call it the field. The field of what? Invisible energy. Energy not seen. The 
touches you in ways that are fascinating. What is that? Wouldn't you like to bottle it and take it home and analyze it? And you can't. Truly, what is this? Instead of looking and saying, maybe there are missing laws of physics we don't know about. But this is the human propensity. Take what is known. Observe what is unknown but there. And place it into the boxes of the known. Even if they don't make sense. Even if they're mysterious. Welcome to Dark Matter. Let me tell you one of the biggest places that you're missing. The place of the physics of consciousness. I worked in the Princeton Engineering Anomalies Research Laboratory until I retired in 2002. But in 1997... I started the Global Consciousness Project. What we have done is to create a network up to about 70 sites around the world. We have a random number generator attached to a computer which collects data continuously. A random number generator is diode and a circuit that pushes electrons through a barrier. We sample a tiny voltage and we convert that into ones and zeros. If the voltage is high, it's a one. Voltage is low, it's a zero. We usually gather every second 200 of those ones and zeros. So we have from many of these random number generators streams of data. We extract the data and draw a cumulative deviation graph. What's expected is for that graph to goes up a little, down a little, and does not have a trend. But when some kind of information being added because of consciousness, we'll see a trend upward or downward persistently. There is a correlation between the state of consciousness a person may have and the way these numbers develop. My name is Roger Nelson. I am the creator and the director of the Global Consciousness Project. He's a five-time New York Times best-selling author and is internationally renowned as a pioneer in bridging science, spirituality, and human potential. Ladies and gentlemen, Grotavrabotai, Kablu et Greg Braden. It's a beautiful graph. Between one and two, there's a pretty strong trend. It's strong enough that it would be significant. So you have a group who is creating a group consciousness field. It's changing the behavior of this random number generator. For 300 years, science has asked the question, is there a field of energy that connects everything? Or is everything separate from everything else? That's the big question. The field is the energy. The field is the origin of everything. That's what the music is actually doing. It's connecting to the field. Once you're connected to the field, you're in your power. 
My name is Robert Coxon. I'm a composer. And I've actually always done music since I was one and a half. And it's always been my passion. I always believed that when I studied chemistry and geology and biology and physics, that what I was doing was understanding little pieces of a greater power. It's just that people didn't talk about it. So I never separated science from spirituality. I asked the question, rather than separating science from spirituality, what if we marry these two great ways of knowing? I am a very stubborn man. The stubbornness comes from years of logic. I believe what I see. I have to find out. I have to know. So I sat down in a chair. I was alone. That is why there was only one avenue that would touch me. And that's my heart. I had such emotion, feeling of benevolence and caring and love. I never had. And I realized there's something there. It is real. You still question it. And so it takes a time to adjust for it to prove itself over and over and over for you to see, okay, finally, I realized I would have to be on stage. That was almost death for me. The first time, it was only for 10 or 15 people. And I, I had to change shirts on the break. I was sweating so much. Oh, it was awful. I said, this is not for me. I don't want to do this. It's not me. What Cryan said is, use your life in Greece when you were an orator, one who spoke elegantly. I got in front of the crowds. They got bigger and bigger. And I tried. I said, okay, I'm going to pull in who I used to be, who I was relaxed with crowds and all. And you know, the more I did it, there was that's exactly what happened. Now I don't get nervous at all. The only thing that makes me nervous is I want to deliver the right message. Let us look at the power and the physics of consciousness. Someday, there will be inventions in physics. And when they do, you will see that consciousness is energy. Consciousness what human beings think collectively can be measured. Changes things, moves things, belief moves things. My name is Lynn McTaggart. I am an international award-winning author and journalist, and I've written seven books. Four of them have been about science and spirituality. Hi, everybody. I wanted to put the idea that our thoughts are an actual something with the capacity to change physical matter to the ultimate test. And I wasn't really sure this was going to work. The idea was to see whether it's possible to detect change of parameters of water under the influence of collective intention from other parts of the world. This is our setup in St. Petersburg, Russia. The water sensor is our little bottle of water right there. Bottle of water with sensor 
to apply very short electrical impulses to water. And we're measuring response of water, conductivity of water, pH of water, negative potential of water. So it's a combination of different parameters. I developed a special sensor, Sputnik. This sensor can respond to human consciousness. We're measuring distribution of standing electromagnetic waves in field. So it's physics. <laughs> in simple words, we are measuring condition of space depending on uh, amount of negative ions, positive ions, interrelation between them, and of course radioactivity as well. Plus geomagnetic field. I turned on this measurement in totally automatic mode and I left the room. So I closed the door. So I didn't know at which moment they make this influence. In Miami it was daytime, in St. Petersburg it was practically midnight. Are we ready? Okay. A deep breath in and a deep breath out. Deep breath in. Visualize that bottle of water. See yourself connecting with it. See your mind traveling all the way over to St. Petersburg and sending attention to that water. Our intention is to send love to this water so that it becomes part of our hearts and becomes pure and more alkaline. Keep feeling the connection with everybody in the room in one big consciousness. yesterday. Remember it? We didn't affect pH. We didn't change the light emissions, but we had an extraordinary effect on the environment around that water. Every bar, it is 10 minutes measurement. It was an hour and a half, 90 minutes. All of that blue is when it was turned on. All of the green is when I started talking. The red is that little 10-minute window of you doing your intention. Signal was had some variations, and then signal tremendously dropped down. It means a calmness. Your calmness have an effect on a little bottle of water thousands and thousands of miles away. opens a door, a door in what you have called the field, where there is no time, there is no space, there's not a place, it just is. Some say the field is the other side of the veil. Some say the field is a magic place where your soul can go and relax for a little while before it comes back. Mm-hmm. 
art floating in the sea of Galilee. When you float, you are not connected to the land. None of you right now are grounded. So we're going to talk now about the soul. Dear ones, you never die. This is not a new age belief. Go back as far as you can and find the texts of the belief of those Hindus and those Buddhists thousands of years before your prophets. What was the staple of their belief? The soul returns. Intuitive, common sense, spiritually made sense. Me and my twin brother, Hemant Kumar Bhadri, he is an astrologer and also practice the purest form of the Tantra. We live in Varanasi. This city is very ancient and a center for knowledge. We have collection of 80,000 books and manuscripts in our house that collected by my grandfather. Tantra, Yoga, Astrology, Ayurveda and Philosophy, also alchemy in these books. Some of them are really very old, more than 1000 years. Government of India is helping us the scanning. Till now they calculate 7732 manuscripts. My grandfather, when he was 21 years old, he left everything and started his spiritual life. He did tapa. Tapa means when we follow the divine, when we alone from the society. Even though Sage Bhrugu left his body many thousand years ago, he appears to my grandfather and he blessed him with the knowledge ancient knowledge, how energy is active everywhere. I'm Dr. Jayant Kumar Bhaduri. I'm Ayurvedic doctor. I'm practicing Bhrigu Yoga. This knowledge I got through my father and he got this through his father, Sri Sudhir Ranjan Bhaduri Mahashaya. According to Indian philosophy, soul is observer, inside. It 
התבקשתי לשבת בשקט במשך כשעה. ידעתי שמתישהו דוקטור בעדורי שולח לי אנרגיה מהודו, אבל לא ידעתי מתי זה מתחיל, מתי זה נגמר, ואם זה בכלל שודר. לא היה לי מושג. I use them to transfer this energy from me to Ayala. We believe that everything is one. So this one active and activate all energy channels in one form. So Ayala is not separate with me. I feel that she is very near to me. was very strict physicist, but I was interested to study what is going on after death. So I organized a big research, had a team of doctors, medical professionals. We've been studying people immediately after death, measuring their bodies and their progress of their energy. Once I have a call from one guy who told me, Constantine, something very strange happening. Can you come to the hospital where we kept this body? I enter and I really feel that someone is looking to me. I feel it. I was able even to detect where this spirit is settled. When we have this putting in the room, we expect to have all parameters stable. If there are no moon eclipse, sun eclipse, or no equipment running around, When we see some peaks on this signal, then it means that there was something influencing this particular one. It was very clear proof for me that all these metaphysical ideas, it's not just imagination. It is a representation of very deep wisdom, very deep knowledge about another side of life. פתאום הרגשתי צורך לפתוח את העיניים והרגשתי ערנית. We did this measurement twice to be sure that it's not just random variation. In this second experiment, he enters this increase of signal. Then he starts meditating. Again, it's increase of signal and signal is coming up. Then it's coming, coming, coming. Then he stops, but signal still is coming up. It's after effect. If you put these two graphs together, you see it's practicing different type of measurement. It's amazing. thousands and thousands of kilometers from India to Israel, Dr. Baduri was able to change physical process, as well as physical process. It means physical reality. 
prophet Elijah. Pretend for a moment to serve Elijah. The name of Elisha. And Elijah comes to you and says, I want you to write it down. Because I have chosen my time to ascend. The transformation began. A light as bright as the sun. It was almost too bright to see to look at. Elisha was touched. He almost couldn't write, couldn't speak. See, he felt that light. He knew that light. He was seeing something. He was seeing the soul of Elijah. As Elijah began to raise this vehicle and ride within him, Elisha would continue to watch. And then Elijah was gone. He wrote it the best he could. You can find it today in the old scriptures. First human got to see the higher self. That's what the higher self looks like. If you can see what's in you, the eyes that Alicia had, you would see the same light. All over the world, they know that word, to ride in their beautiful chariot, almost like you're going home. I've waited a long time to sit where it happened. Same dirt, same place. This is simply the DNA field fully activated. There's a field around you. It's a DNA field. It's a consciousness field. It is not your brain. Consciousness is not biology. It is the quantum portion of the DNA. The 90% that is not understood by science is the quantum portion. Science very often, unfortunately, goes through dogmas. DNA is one of these dogmas. Only 1% is coding DNA. These are the genes. And for a long time, it was thought that all the remnant of the DNA, 95, 98, 99%, was just junk DNA, was garbage. Now we know that this is absolutely not true. In order to understand what the code is, uh, we have to go to the vibration. My name is Carlo Ventura. I'm a cardiologist. I'm a full professor of molecular biology in the School of Medicine at the University of Bologna. And I'm the director of the National Laboratory of Molecular Biology and Stem Cell Engineering at the National Research Council in Bologna. I was very, very young, maybe less than 10. And uh, I saw my mother, uh, she was sick. I promised myself that uh, even if I, I could not see 
what was making her being sick, I will find it and I will cure her. Then I decided to, to, to become a doctor. Since I was a kid, I was fascinated by playing with the invisible. Playing with the invisible means playing with the information, playing with energies, playing with forces. These forces, they have intelligence. Isaac Newton didn't put God or invisible forces or spirit. He just measured physical things. So the body being a part of a mechanical universe is a machine. So how do you understand how the machine works? Take it apart, study the pieces. So they were taking apart the body. They found there were cells. And then they took the cells apart. And they found that cells are made out of protein. And the question is, who makes proteins? It was in 1944 that the first study revealed that if you took DNA from one species and put it into a bacterial culture of a different species, the bacterial culture would start to resemble the bacteria where the DNA came from. So then they said, well, the DNA makes the protein. The next question is, who makes the DNA? Well, this is where science got screwed up. DNA is a double helix. In an experiment, they separated the double helix, so I have two single helices. And they put those into a solution of building blocks. And they pulled it out, and it was a double helix again. The answer is clear. DNA makes itself, and DNA makes the proteins. The end of the search. Once they found the DNA was important, they threw away the protein. Well, they threw out the control. The control was in the protein. And proteins respond to environmental signals. Inside this dark area, which is the nucleus, you have two meters of DNA, each folding, each loop of the DNA that has a vibrational code, it has an electromagnetic emission. It's like flying, it's continuously vibrating. Nothing is, is stable. Our genes working as a symphony, and that's the symphony of life. which led me on the path of electromagnetic research with lasers, that it began with the vision, a vision of DNA. The vision that I had was that DNA is more than just physical chemistry. The information that was profound was that the structure of DNA, coils within coils, DNA was also creating electromagnetic frequency information and that the DNA in the body was communicating with each other instantaneously, like radios. The critical information was that by sending electromagnetic frequency information, we could literally vibrate DNA, instruct DNA, give it the information, either for sick cells to become healthy or old cells to become young. You have hundreds of thousands of molecules. They can exchange vibrations across these cables all over around the field. It's one field. This is chemistry, but it's a kind of dancing chemistry, and you can talk to this chemistry with physics. The outer surface of the cell membrane is there are little antennas called receptors. 
and the receptors are responding to environmental signals. This is what changed my whole life in a minute because uh, I wasn't spiritual. I realized it's not the antennas, it's the signal coming to the antennas. I'm uh, like a television set, I'm playing the Bruce show, but the broadcast is coming in. And if the body dies, broadcast is still there, just like a television set. I'm Dr. Tadovakaitis. I am a medical doctor. My highest level training was as a specialist in pulmonary and intensive care medicine. With that background, I began to study laser biophysics and the ways that lasers interact with biology. In 2010, when I produced the DNA book, we still thought that 90% of DNA was not functional. They called it junk DNA. It was only in 2012, I think, that they discovered what it did. And it does what Cryon said it did in Cryon Book 10. The field is a sub-reality that contains the potentials of everything that exists. The potentials of the future. Precognition is simply the identification of what is already there. It's just not the time for it yet, but it exists. It becomes a little bit difficult to understand the nature of such an intelligence, crime. But the information provided is particularly scientific. And I've been with Lee all over the world. I've seen this phenomenon time and time again. It is our ability to tune our hearts and minds into an energetic field in a way that allows information to be conveyed from one realm to the next. You can pull that information from the field. Intuition means you've tapped into the knowledge that has been stored in that field. The really good pieces, I don't feel that I'm writing them. And if I look at my CDs, and I, the, the most magical pieces on there, I have a very hard time saying, I, Robert Coxon, wrote that. It's coming through. I don't know where my hands are going to go, but they go to the right place if I let them. I love the idea of setting the empty chair. The chair is filled. But when crime comes in, I go away. When I first started, I thought, what if I have a whole auditorium full of people and I sit in the chair and crime doesn't come? <laughs> that was the biggest fear I had for the first few years. Then I realized it's not going to come in. It's already here. No angels are separate from the one God. We put them there. Crime says, You've called me a name because that makes you comfortable. He says, on the other side of the veil, there is a collective, what you call God, billions and billions of energies with one consciousness. We sit on the Mount of Beatitudes. You might hear the wind blowing in the background. Here is a statement. I am that I am.
these two words together, you have to group them. The statement is very clear. I am part of the creative source, a piece of God. Now I ask you, who are you? Really? As you sit there, who are you? My name is Peggy Phoenix Dubrow, and you're asking me, who am I? I woke up when I was 22. That defines me. I was raised Christian, and I had learned that God was my father in my religion. But I didn't feel this love. My own childhood, I came from a pretty dark and dirty place. My father, he was a paranoid schizophrenic alcoholic, and he was very abusive to my brother and sister and I, and I was the oldest. That's what drove me. I needed to know God the Father. So I sat quietly in the living room, and I wrote, I want to remember God in every cell of my body, in in this time, in this place, in this moment. It was like veils of reality fell away. Layers and layers of energy. And then I could feel my body filled with this light and energy. I only knew I'm in this space that I just experienced the most exquisite divine love ever. And I just wanted to share it. And I just wanted to tell people God is real and God loves us as we are. The first thing I did after having that experience is I went to the elders of the church. The elders of the church said, we know who you are. We know where you live. We know what your life is like. You're dirty. Why would God talk to you? There was just no way. So I went quiet and then I began to study. 15 years in deep study. And then I had a second experience. And this light structure start to radiate out and the structure of the lattice showed itself. So it's fibers of light and energy. It's an extension of our sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous system that has feedback loops, infinity feedback loops that radiate. It is a system in our energy anatomy, like an energetic skin. And I started to see the lattice in people's energy fields. I've learned how to read the fibers of light and energy and what they have to say. We are light. We have a symbol we use. You make the symbol, the person doesn't know. It's like an antenna just, just telling the universe, beep, 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 beep. It dials up a resonance within you and within the person you're working with. It's a vibrational frequency that Divine Matrix understands.
jump of parameters. Very unexpected jump. But as we had time code on the cameras, it was found that at this particular moment, this lady Tamar, she put her hand to her heart. And if we look to her parameters, then we see level of energy increased tremendously. Maybe she felt something. That's why she put her hand to her heart. Distance does not matter. Not a scientist. I don't understand all this. I, I know that principles of it make me feel good. There's a scientific study by a man called Cleve Baxter. He took cells from a human, put them in a petri dish, and moved them 40 miles away. They began to show powerful images to the person that had donated the cells. Graphic images of war, destruction, comedy, humor, sexual images, anything to elicit a genuine emotional response. The instant, the instant that the person had the emotion, his cells acted as if they were still in his body having the same emotion. The cells 40 miles away show the electrical activity of that response. What's the point? If so, this person's cells are connected to this person, but they're 40 miles away. How did the information reach or did it? And the answer is it didn't have to travel. The field is holographic. And what that means is what happens in one part of the field influences other parts of the field in the same instant. And this is deeply, deeply profound. Our thoughts are not contained in our head. Our thoughts are broadcast to the field. If I put wires on your head, that's called EEG, electroencephalograph, I can read your brain. But there's a new technology called magnetoencephalograph. The probe doesn't touch the head. The probe is out here. I'm reading your brain activity from out here. Point? Your brain activity is being broadcast. What is the thought? Thought is a frequency. A thought emits a vibration. From the most primitive organism all the way up to humans, all of us communicate by vibration. How does them even know to go to the right place and not go to the wrong place? Vibes. For every light frequency, there's a corresponding sound frequency. For every sound frequency, there's a corresponding light frequency. Every atom has its own vibrational frequency. We are field of vibration. We are also photons. It is light. Thought is a particle of light. We can measure it. There was an experiment conducted by a physicist named Bell. You have a photon that splits to two, and they're so far apart that a signal cannot go from one to the other without going faster than light. So the question was, if they could communicate instantly, that would mean that communication faster than the speed of light is possible if there is entanglement of the waveform. And when the experiment was done, what they discovered very interestingly was that the particles can communicate faster than light. Much as photons communicating, you can view consciousness as also having wave characteristics, which means in consciousness, we can communicate and perceive anywhere throughout the entire universe. So if thought can be measured as a wave function, as a particle of light, what does light travel? Seven times around the planet in one second. So can a thought travel like that? 
My name is Krishna Madhapa. I run an institute for science, spirituality and sustainability in the US. My education has been engineering sciences, mechanical industrial engineering, biophysics and psychoneurobics. That has led me to deeper understanding into the sciences of light. We sit on the Golan Heights where many wars were and many Israelis will say it's only a matter of time and there will be another and another generation after generation after generation things haven't changed if you have a sightless person in front of you and they've been sightless since birth sit with them a moment explain the spectrum of color they don't know what they don't know i say to israel you don't know what you don't know color is coming three years old I was kind of drug off to our local community church and remember my little feet hanging over the pews the minister was up there with a sermon talking about a vengeful God I was looking around at the big people all standing up and doing their things I had this deep insight at that moment wait a minute you can't be believing this this was utter nonsense I grew up in a, a small farming community and my grandfather was the mechanic for the community He fixed all the tractors and cars and I would spend a lot of time hanging out with him. So I developed very early on a natural curiosity for how things work. What are radio waves, electricity? I was never satisfied with our explanations of what is an electric field or what is a magnetic field. As I then went to college and became an electrical engineer and worked for Motorola fixing high-level communication systems, that really didn't feel like it was my path. Something was just missing. Another sports car in the driveway wasn't going to do it. There was still that deeper hole, something to really, that I was really here to help humanity. I, I deeply understood, not just mentally, that it's about consciousness. It's not about technology. Technology is not going to solve the world's problems until consciousness shifts. I'm Dr. Roland McCready. I am director of research at the HeartMath Institute. We sent a number of these devices to Israel. A number of people wore them at the same time so we could see how their nervous system responded to these different activities, whether it was meditating, singing, being in parts of channeling sessions and so on. Listen to the others 
as if we were one voice, as if we were all one voice, very softly. If we look at this graph here, we see that during a meditation, the four people here that were being monitored at the same time, there's a lot of differences during the meditation. But really interestingly, after that, when some singing was going on, we see a very clear change in the patterns of three of the four people. Very nice period of coherence occurred. Coherence has a very unique pattern. It's a very distinct, different pattern than the rest of the rhythms. We know from many, many studies over many years, close to 400 independent studies now have shown it is a very beneficial state. Blood pressure is reduced. Hormonal balance shifts to more positive ratios. It's really when we have heartfelt emotions of connection with others, love, care, compassion, these positive regenerating feelings take us naturally into this very optimal state that we call coherence. I can share who I really am through music, my voice. Just be able to close my eyes and go in that space. For me, it's more like it happens now. Right now. When I sing, that's when I pray. As I wrote in my song, you know, the one that started to do Something's going on that I can't explain. No matter how much I use my brain. My name is Anna Holte. I'm from Denmark. My education was as a classical singer and conductor. My work changed completely direction. In 1991, I had a professor. She devoted her life to voice work with people. One evening, just all of a sudden, gave me a book. It was a book like so many books that talks about the possibility that there is a greater universe, a greater existence happening beyond just this 3D world. And I was reading this and I was crying and crying and crying and crying because it touched a point in me as if someone had recognized me. Oh, there is this option. I can feel this again. Oh, yeah. And when I was singing, I began to realize much more clearly what is going on when I do that. I had always loved it, but the consciousness was the difference. Because when I sing, that's when, that's when I pray. Oh. This is John. <laughs> Where are you? Good question. We're in the field. This is John. We found our scientist. How cool is that? So I think we can. <laughs> Look at that.
Oh, thank you. Hey, John, we made it. This is good to see you, man. This is good. Good to see you. I can't tell you how glad I was to hear your voice here at the end. Wow. Christina, how are you? Wonderful to see you. This must be the most beautiful located laboratory in the world. I don't know about that, but it's certainly a beautiful spot, isn't it? Oh, my wow. God. I'm looking forward. <laughs> oh, this is fantastic. You all started back at the Great Pyramid in 1997. Three weeks before I was due to go out to Egypt, I severely injured my lower back. I thought I would have to cancel the whole mission, but... Somehow, I managed to get into the pyramid. Other people carried the equipment. The experiment that was designed was to make visible the resonances in the sarcophagus. I set up the experiment. Then I stretched PVC membrane across the open top of the sarcophagus. Then I sprinkled sand on the membrane. And when we switched on the sound, this is just pure tones, electronically created tones a whole range of ancient Egyptian hieroglyphs started to appear in the sand. First one was the hieroglyph for backbone, your spinal column. It was writhing about like a snake. Antiquities inspector, he was like, how you do that? How you do that? saw lots and lots of different hieroglyphs coming out on this membrane. But what was so extraordinary was within 20 minutes of making sound, all the pain in my back left me and never did come back. It's an extraordinary moment in my life that changed my life forever. My name is John Stuart Reed and I'm an acoustic physics researcher. Pythagoras said that music could be used in place of medicine. It got my attention and I thought there must be some experiments that could be conducted where we can carefully measure the response of music to some sort of healing situation. The first experiment that I conceived of was using blood. You take a vial of blood and you place it into an incubator with a small loudspeaker in the incubator that's feeding music to that blood. At the same time that that's happening, we have another vial of the same blood. We have a Faraday cage, which is electromagnetically screened, but it's also a very, very quiet environment. So that blood is not receiving any music, it's just receiving quiet.
We go through a protocol that first dilutes the blood by a certain ratio with a buffer solution, and then we extract a small amount of that mixed blood. When we put that blood into the cell counter, it will tell us how many cells are actually live and what the term is viable. The cells in the Faraday cage have not fared very well at all. Mostly dead. But if the cells are dead, that means that the cells from the tube that got exposed to my voice, they'll be dead too. I mean, it's the same blood. I think we should probably repeat that though and see if we get the same result. Let's try to count these cells. Still the same with that sample. <laughs> I hope you can see this. Dilute the sample. More cells alive than the cell counter can count. That's a huge difference between the music and the quiet. Oh, well, look. <laughs> so I think we should repeat and see if we get the same result. Above the range that it can count, cells that are transiting towards being dead have been actually re-enlivened to the extent that so many of them are now alive. Really wonderful. An amazing result. Absolutely amazing. When we have a heartbeat, it creates a pressure wave and that allows the hemoglobin molecules take in some oxygen from the blood. The low frequencies from Anders voice are creating the similar sort of pressure waves that allows the blood to uptake the oxygen. People say, okay, Bruce, you're studying cells in a plastic petri dish. What does that have to do with me? It doesn't make a difference to the cell if it's in a plastic dish or a skin dish. It still responds to environmental signals. So the environment is controlling the cells. But between the environment and the cells is the mind. And that does interpretation. If you open your eyes and see someone you love, your mind interprets love. And you release beautiful chemicals. Dopamine for pleasure. Oxytocin for bonding. If I take the chemicals from brain that perceives love and put them into a plastic petri dish, the cells grow beautifully. If I take the chemicals from a brain that perceives fear, the cells stop growing and they start dying. So you're the one whose thoughts change the chemistry and the chemistry controls the genetics. So all of a sudden, you're not a victim of your genes. You're the master of your genes. We are on Mount Hermon and it allows a view into Lebanon and Syria. Not too far from here, a dark army without borders. 
consciousness you have carried around for eons and eons, and the darkness that you have seen can fill libraries. Where do you take your cue from? I'll tell you, from the past. Isn't it time to change that? You can change the past because of what the future holds. It means that the consciousness that expects a good future will back up and change that energy that says you're nuts. It's going to happen again. It's going to happen again because it always does. Things that are happening in the future can change the past. Did you hear that? We were able to send these cells back in time. So this was our experimental model. We grew cells for more than three months. This is a critical point where the cells are completely aged. They're not able to do anything. They start to die. We found is that exposing our stem cells to radioactive field, we were able to send these cells back in time. And the cells started to uh, proliferate again and to differentiate again. That means making our cells baby again. It's like a time machine. Sound, magnetic field, light are all diffusive energies. They can pass through the bodies. Our work has involved creating a new type of laser technology. We can take the waves that start out coherently and redefine their movement such that the waves are now exactly out of phase. And when we do that and combine the waves together, the wave patterns cancel each other out. So we've created a new form that you could almost call invisible light. When the laser is constructed in this form, it goes much more deeply than ordinary laser. Instead of stopping at the skin, we can go deep into tissue. Our earliest experiments particularly involve working with HIV. In studies done at the University of Southern California, where we completely removed the virus with no harmful effect upon the cell. Our work in Africa has taken that further, creating a combination of nutrition plus waves with extremely good results. Our most impressive case, a patient from South Africa who had virtually no immune system left, a normal CD4 count, under 200 is AIDS, and this patient started at a level of 23. Six months later, there was no detectable virus. Following him for five years, his immune system recovered to a high normal 1100. The viral load was undetectable at that point. Seeing the hieroglyphs, that really inspired me. I wanted to develop an instrument that would make sound visible. Ultimately, I developed the cymoscope instrument, which uses a very small volume of water that is exquisitely sensitive to vibration. sound enters into the water, what I see every day is a beautiful image. Beauty begets beauty. We are 90% water. Mm. 
Think about the membranes around every cell in our bodies receiving a beautiful pattern, a harmonious pattern. Those cells are all going to be beautifully massaged and feeling, wow, we're being supported here. And there's a very clear change when you compare a healthy cell sound with a cancer cell sound, which produces ugly pattern. So it's a whole new science. Yes, it is. What did he say? Talking about frequencies and um, how they change physical matter. 
Okay, so we're just going to enjoy the different language, I guess. <laughs> okay, well, if you see... Kodesh, He's talking about how energy uh, can, re- with sound, can restore body parts. ואחרי <laughs> היכולת הולכה מתחת לאזור הפגיעה, ואיזשהו סוג של חיבור בין החלק הפגוע לחלק הבריא. בעיקרון אמרו לאותו מטופל שהוא לא יכול להזיז את הרגליים אף פעם, בסוף הטיפול הוא גם יצליח להזיז את הרגל. גוגל התלהבה מאיתנו כי אנחנו הלכנו למדודה מאוד מאוד קשוחה. מה, אנחנו צריכים לגלות איזה תדרים מתאימים לאיזה תפקוד שאנחנו רוצים? It's a human cardiac cell contracting, beating by this sensor we are recording This trace here is a vibrational code. We can listen to the sound produced by this vibration. When this sound was given to non-differentiated human stem cell, after two weeks, the cells transformed into beating myocardial cell. These are cardiac myocytes derived from human stem cells. They became exactly like the cells from which we recorded the sound. My main work in regenerative medicine is in trying to, to fix a broken heart. You see, the field is all around you. Field wants harmony. What that truly means is that unbalance in your chemistry will result from unbalance in your personality. You've heard everything that I have had to say about the beauty of compassion and what compassionate action means and you listen and you listen. There are those who said, well, I'd like to harmonize, but I've had a whole life of a habit. This is just the way I work. So right behind your forehead is a lump of brain called prefrontal cortex. This is the conscious mind. The conscious mind has wishes, desires, aspirations. What do you want from your life? Creative. Conscious mind is about 10%. The rest of the brain, 90%, is called the subconscious mind. The subconscious mind is primarily habits. And the fundamental habits didn't come from me. 
the last trimester of pregnancy, and the first seven years of your life, your brain is operating at a low vibrational frequency called theta, and theta is hypnosis. How do you learn to be a member of a family and a community and a culture? You watch other people. You focus on your family, see how they do everything. You learn from everybody else. So the programs that you get for the first seven years are not yours. They came from other people, and they pass that on to you. But the problem is, it's not just the previous generation, the generation before, the generation before, the generation. So we pass down through the family. Here's the problem, big time. Science has found that 95% of our life we're thinking. When the conscious mind is thinking, it's not paying attention. When the conscious mind is not paying attention, the subconscious program is the default. Well, if you understand that, then it says only five percent of the time you're running your life with your creative mind, the wishes and the desires and what you want. Five percent, ninety-five percent of your life. Is coming from the program. Yeah, but the program is not your wishes and desires. It's other people's behavior. Ninety-five percent of the day, you are playing programs that psychologists tell us are limiting, disempowering, self-sabotaging. All of us, every one of us, every day, plays programs that we don't see, and they're not ours. All we see is the result, and we go, "Oh my goodness, this is not what I wanted." Yeah, but this is what you created. This is something that changed my life. I was playing in a hotel and playing all that dance music, the things that everyone plays. I was really depressed. Where am I going to go from here? Playing another hotel? How can I help people? I came home and I hugged the big maple tree in our front yard, and I asked that tree, "How come you are so powerful? You're so tall, majestic, and beautiful." And this wasn't a thought. This I heard this in my ears. The tree says to me, "Because I never doubted that I was a tree. Never doubted that you're the master." You know, I didn't wake up the next morning and suddenly I was this this great composer, and I was, you know, I had to work on myself because I still had to get rid of the baggage, and it's taken many years. How we limit ourselves? Oh, I'm too short for this. I'm I'm a woman. I'm not a man. No, if you say something great about yourself. You're recognizing the God within, and that's so important. I was married very early. I was too young. It didn't work out. I was there ten years, and at one point, it's like out. And it was so painful to get out that every day when I would shave, I would go. I'll never get married again. I'll never get married again. So, 17 years. Then I ended up meeting my partner Margaret. Every time we go on a date, I would say, "If you're looking for a relationship, it's not me. But if we have a good time today, 
then we'll probably go out tomorrow. At some point, we both started living day by day. We're living in the honeymoon. Life is beautiful. Everything is great. Heaven on earth. And I'm thinking about going to do my job. She comes up and asks me a simple loving question. And I turn around and go, blah, blah, blah. She looks at me and goes, who are you? I didn't see what I did. I just, it was automatic. Yeah, I was doing my father. Oh, no, I was doing my mother. Oh, no, I could see it. Both of us, knowing about the subconscious, not getting into arguments about it, we both started to understand we could change these behaviors. I've been living with Margaret in a honeymoon state for 18 years. Not just that my relationship is beautiful. My life has become beautiful. Have you felt it yet? The profundity of this trip. It's just another tourist area, right? You're going to remember this time. If you look at humanity, you haven't learned the basic. Hatred begats hatred. War creates war. The human nature is not wise. It hasn't figured out the basis of love. The love. Love is the glue that holds the universe together. We have two satellites in the Northern Hemisphere and each satellite will send back a signal and every 24 hours in a day the signals will ebb and they'll flow the, the strength of the field will ebb and flow in a very similar way one day this field just spiked right off the chart and scientists said what on earth is happening to create this spike it was precisely the field spiked at 9 a.m. 15 minutes after the first plane hit the first tower of the World Trade Center September 11, 2001, many people of the earth found that we were more of a family. They held one another, they cried together, they loved one another at least for a few days. And scientists attribute that closeness to the strength of the magnetic fields. This has led to a project that is called GCI, the Global Coherence Initiative, headed up by the Institute of Heart Math. There are a series of Earth-based probes that are feeding the data of the magnetic field of the Earth. You know, there's a saying, the still small voice of the heart. In reality, the voice of the heart is not so still and so small. It's just that the noise of the mind is so loud. The magnetic field produced by the heart is about 100 times stronger than the magnetic field produced by the brain. We can measure the heart's field about a meter, about three feet from the body. You can measure a brainwave about an inch away. The heart, through our nervous system, sends far more neural information up to the brain than the brain sends to the heart. And these signals that the heart sends to the brain have profound influences on brain function. They go to every major center in the brain. I'm going to share with you techniques that I've learned from the monks and the nuns and the shamans and the mystics that I've worked with in addition to heart math research 
Okay, so now I'm inviting you to close your eyes. I invite you to allow your awareness to move from your mind into your heart. Touch your heart center gently. Slow your breathing. A little bit slower than usual. Five seconds on the inhale. Five seconds on the release. Five seconds on the inhale. Pause. Five seconds release. You're creating a very, very sacred space in your body. It's the connection between your heart and your brain. When we can create coherence between the heart and the brain, we create signal that can be measured electrically, 0.10 hertz. It's a very low frequency. When we get coherent, physiological, lots of things, we can measure how the heart and brain are becoming more synchronized. But we're also accessing intuition. When we are in optimum coherence, we are connected to the magnetic field of the Earth. So we don't necessarily have to go to quantum effects and all of this. We all live within a magnetic field here on Earth. Our heart's magnetic fields are coupled to the Earth's magnetic field, and it's the big carrier wave. We're doing some innovative experiments to ask that question and prove it. So one of the first studies in California, some of the volunteers were in the southern part of the state, some in central, some in the north, and they were going about their normal lives for 30 days. What we found is this group of people's heart rhythms is synchronized slow wave synchronization how can this be the only thing that could explain this was if they were synchronizing to a signal that they were all exposed to and that turned out to be the resonant frequencies in the earth's magnetic field the next question was was this happening globally so we had groups of 20 people in five countries california saudi arabia lithuania new zealand and in the uk He had all the groups around the world do the meditation together at the same time. 15 minutes, the group globally became more synchronized in their local groups to each other, but they also became more synchronized to the Earth's magnetic field in a significant way. In fact, the data has even surprised us that we are far more interconnected and synchronized with the Earth's magnetic fields than we ever would have predicted. Back in 2008, I decided to see if we could use our consciousness to lower violence in war-torn areas. So we decided to send intention over eight days to Sri Lanka, which at the time was going through a 25-year war. You can scroll down this page and look at the data of the peace intention in Sri Lanka. You can see there's a fairly steady trend away from what should be just a horizontal random walk along that black line in the middle of the graph. What is the significance of it being sort of under the line? Does that mean anything? We've seen that numerous times. In fact, it's now become a kind of prediction that we make for great mass uh, gatherings of people. The really weird thing about this is that people aren't gathered. They're actually sitting in front of their individual computer screens everywhere in the world. We had participants on this experiment from about 80 countries around the globe. What was really interesting was that a few months after that, 
that 25-year intractable war is over. Did we do this? What you need to do in order to start claiming that maybe consciousness had an effect is repeat over and over and over again. So we replicated it for the first time in 2011 to mark the 10th anniversary of 9-11. We'd send intention to lower violence in two southern provinces in Afghanistan. What did you find? We found the same, Lynn. <laughs> the data here, driven in the direction of negative going trend in both cases, the larger span of time and also the very concentrated focused intention period. It was evident that violence in those two provinces had plummeted to levels that were far lower than before. So that was fascinating. And we ran one in Washington, D.C. Again, we lowered violence by about a third. That was just really confirmed again in September, October 2017, sending intention to lower violence in an area of St. Louis, the most violent street in America. In this case, we have a little bit of a positive trend, but then it takes on the very characteristic negative trend that we've seen for these kinds of experiments. A professor of statistics, Dr. Jessica Utz from the University of California, she provided an analysis. Crime went up in three areas. The only thing that went down and went down hugely, it was by 43% compared to the year before, was violent crime in our area of focus, fairground. It really says a lot about what group mind could possibly be. Everybody has always understood that we're connected in this way. Consciousness is not just a electrical activity in your head, but it uh, is a kind of wonderful uh, composition of heart and mind and soul and spirit. When you put that all together, what we find is that science using the best techniques of the 20th and now the 21st century, has borne out the deepest truths of our most cherished and ancient spiritual traditions, saying we are connected to one another, we're connected to all things, and what we think and what we feel is important in our lives, it's important in this world. During the last years, in the late 1980s, the Cold War, when the two superpowers at that time, the former Soviet Union and the United States of America, they came this close to doing the unthinkable and to unleashing nuclear weapons upon this world and civilian populations in a way that we've never seen. And I found myself working in the industry, hoping that that would never happen. By day and by night, I found myself researching the ancient texts of our past, the Hebrew traditions, the Egyptian traditions, the Andean traditions, the Sumerian traditions, all of the ancient wisdom, because I believe that those who have come before us left us the key to prevent the war that so many people believe we will still have. For that reason, my journey has taken me to some of the most remote, isolated, magnificent, pristine, beautiful places remaining in the world today, in the monasteries, in the libraries, with the shaman, in the healers, where they preserved the wisdom that we're only beginning to understand. One evening, I climbed to the top of Mount Sinai, and I was alone, 
And as the last rays of the sun set behind the desert, the beauty overwhelmed me. Uh, and this feeling welled up inside of me. I asked myself a question, and it was about my life and my role in the world. If I left this world in this moment, if I died now, and I looked back on my life and knew I could never come back, would I feel complete with this lifetime? And before the question was even finished, this feeling inside of me was screaming, no, no, I would not feel complete. Something, something I had yet to accomplish. And that day became the reference point by which I gauge every choice, every decision, every relationship, every job, every career, everything I've done from that moment. Because a lot of beautiful opportunities cross my path. They're all beautiful. But which one will help me get closer to my yes? We now come to Qumran, the place where over 960 documents ultimately were found. Some of them 2,200 years old. One of the most powerful documents, the War Scroll. It says that from the time the first humans have walked this earth, there have been beings who are what are called the Watchers. The Watchers are the ones that record with objectivity, the sons of lightness and the sons of darkness. In the end, one last great conflict between darkness and light, and the texts give us a choice. Will we perpetuate this cycle of darkness, suffering, and war? Or will we wake up and choose a new cycle, a cycle of peace and cooperation? They always give us a choice. Will we choose peace? On one platform, there's what we will call dark consciousness. On one other platform, light consciousness. Two years, we told you, be ready for the dark. It will not give up without a battle. And now the battle is here. It's all over the news. Everything that they are doing is calculated to scare you to death. Fear is black. If you shine your light and staying out of fear, the whole world will be brighter for it. Nothing can survive your light. The evening is here. Not too far away is the Dead Sea. The breeze blows, the chill of the air is coming. We sit in a profound place. An ancient place. For me to give this the final message of the Israeli series. Have you ever wondered, Jew, 
What is the anti-Semitism about? What would create this? The conquerors would turn their eyes upon you and wipe you out, destroy the temples, or try genocide. Listen, Israeli. This is your field. we start the journey. The city on the hill is where you are. This is and always has been the symbol for the new Jerusalem in a world of peace. I got three different cells and they're three individuals. One individual is Muslim. Another individual is Jewish. Another individual is Christian. Where's the difference come from? The difference is programming. Why is it important? The source is the same. All the channels we've given you in the last week have been profoundly given in love. In love. The term the chosen ones refer to the Jews chosen to bring this planet a monotheistic God, a one God. That the one God would then be seen by the planet and eventually the entire planet would be unified with one God. But you're not done. And the next part is as hard as the first. Because it is planetary as well. Dear ones, listen clearly. You are chosen to bring peace here. When will they say it's going to be so difficult? It's not just us, you know, it's them. The situation is more than difficult. It's untenable. There is no solution that you can see. But there is. And you do it with consciousness. That's what you're chosen for. The hardest thing the planet will ever see. Peace in the region.
עשרות אלפי אנשים עומדים להצטרף לנו ממש בעוד עשר דקות. כל העולם, מעיראק, מאיראן, ממרוקו, ברזיל, פיליפינים, ארצות הברית, איפה לא? כולם עם כוונה אחת. כולם, אני אהיה משטרה. שלום סלאם בשעת אוסם. דוקטור בעדורי מאינדיה, מהודו, מבקש לברך אותנו. Good wishes to you and to everyone. Blessings and love to Israel and all surrounding countries. God bless you all. Is Jerusalem on? Jerusalem is on! Very good. So we have people from all over the Middle East coming together, Arabs and Israelis, for a, a historic event. And we also have many thousands of people from all over the world participating on YouTube. One of the people responsible for this event is Dr. Salah al-Rashid. And thanks to him, we're broadcasting in Southern England in Smartways Studio. So are you ready to begin now, everybody? Ek chintan kariye ki ek swarnim abha is prithi pe charo aur bhair rahi hai. Our intention is to lower violence and restore peace in the old city of Jerusalem by at least 10% or more. Imagine it with your five senses. See people putting down their weapons. See people restoring peace there. See people hugging each other, hugging strangers, reaching across the aisle. Hold those intentions in your mind as you imagine yourself holding the hands of everyone on either side of you. If you're watching on YouTube, imagine you're holding the hands of everybody. All the thousands of people on this call. Can you feel the connection? Are you seeing peace? In your own time, open up your eyes. And come on back into the room. Would anybody like to talk to us about how that felt? Yes. So we have someone from? Aman. Aman. How are you? Uh, it's amazing. Curious. We all here crying, our tears uh, falling down. Like the commercial that you see on the road, and it was written 
The peace is already here. Yes. Jeddah in Saudi Arabia. I saw myself there. I felt very strong love for the Jews, in spite of our raising up to hate the Jews. We live in Jerusalem. We know it personally. It's so emotional. And I've seen the four quarters of the old city as the four rooms of my personal heart. Yes, you're on Abu Dhabi. Israelis are dancing, the Palestinians, they have to dance the real with the Israelis. Like Tunisia, peace and love. Tunisia. Yes, Tunisia. I saw a lot of
it went even lower than the baseline. Why? This water received all this love and all of a sudden, Senavi, everybody is gone. I would like to ask you something. To sing the next lines with me. In the honor of the here in Jerusalem in Israel, there is more than one language. So I ask you to help me sing the next line. When Dr. Baduri started chanting, instruments putting staying in the same room was able to detect decrease of parameters. When he started silent meditation, it was even much stronger. When people meditate, it decreases the level of radioactivity, it decreases the level of noise, electromagnetic noise, and it makes everything much more harmonized. You can sing both, We looked at the data. Consists of all 32 instruments placed all around the world, mostly Europe and America, but some in Australia, some in Japan. And you can see in this case, very characteristic trend exactly during the event itself. What your work does that's so amazing is Western mind needs proof. When we uh, do the statistics, we gradually gather 500 experiments into one composite database. And when we look at the statistics for that, the departure from what's expected for random number generators is what the physicists call seven sigma. The chance of that happening is one in a trillion. It's basically a way of saying that we're pretty sure there's an effect. charts and the graphs that show the field is real. It exists. I want to take you the rest of the way. You look into the eyes of the infant for the first time. What do you say? Mom, what could you say? What could you say? I'm going to be with you. All your lives, I'm going to protect you. I'm going to love you. There is no measure to this. There's no measure emerging from you. Life Put on your chest, open its eyes, and there he or she is. The scientists can't go there with the charts and the graphs and all that they have, but I can, you see. You came for science, you're getting love. And then you find out that love may be a complement of science. That's why I came. Perhaps that's why you came too.
May peace prevail on earth, everyone. Aho. Aho mitakuyasun. That was exquisite. Thank you for all of us together doing this. <sighs> well, this one is by Dr. Robert Gilbert. And Rama's looking for it. <laughs> it's called Rosicrucianism, Spiritual Warfare. That's an interesting combination of words. And our global ascension. That's another interesting uh, thought as we uh, come together again. This is an hour, 19 minutes and 35 seconds. Mm-hmm. I will read this. We won't get done till we go to the yeah. other side. But um, in this episode of the Wisdom Keeper podcast, I am delighted to be joined by Dr. Robert Gilbert, a leading scholar of Western esotericism and sacred geometry, particularly the Rosicrucian tradition of mystical Christianity. Using ancient cosmological maps, Robert locates our human civilization entering a period of darkness. They just said that too. So Mm -hmm. what we're being prepared to do with the blessings coming is Mm -hmm. to form community all over the planet Mm -hmm. to uh, assert support and light. Um, okay, so um, using ancient cosmological maps, Robert locates our human civilization entering a period of darkness and fragmentation. Co, <laughs> there's a whiny cat, co emerging with a dr- dramatic expansion of consciousness and global ascension. Exactly what the doctor ordered, you might say. Robert and I am almost done, Raman. Two minutes, one minute. <laughs> Robert and I converse about the hidden dimensions of unseen beings, angels, and deities, as well as the similarities between the Tibetan Buddhist tantras and the Rosicrucian path of bio- biogeometry. Each repatterning the energy flow in our subtle body nervous system so we can fulfill our purpose as incarnate souls in the world. I know you will enjoy Robert's wealth of knowledge and coherent synthesis as much as I do. In this episode, Robert and I discuss the Vedic Yuga cause. Everyone, we have a bit of a glitch with the uh, internet box connected to BBS radio. Uh, maybe the quantum field, you know. <laughs> Had a hiccup, a diet one. Yeah, I mean that. We did some good work, everybody. What these folks just said about how we are all connected in this giant field. 
it, it affects everything, everyone. Mm-hmm. As you can physically see, we disappeared. <laughs> oh, Rama, I left my glasses in the other room. Okay, here is... Can I just borrow yours for a moment? Yeah, this I is... Want, I want to read something. I thought you just said. Well, I know, but I don't think anybody heard me. Oh. <laughs> we were talking to the universe. Uh, I'll just say it real quick here. This is by um, Dr. Miles Neal. He's the one that's interviewing Dr. Robert Gilbert. Yes. And Dr. Robert Gilbert's topic is Rosicrucianism, spiritual warfare, and a global ascension. And that sounds very appropriate to what's going on. And I'll just say that he also says here we're entering the age of Archangel Michael with that Excalibur blue sort of truth. Uh, and, well, I think we should just let this go now. Let's just start. Here we go. It won't get finished, but we'll start. Welcome, everybody, far and wide from the Indonesian island of Bali. This is Dr. Miles Neal, and today I have a very special guest, Dr. Robert Gilbert, who is a scholar and teacher of esoteric wisdom and science, particularly the European Rosicrucian and Holy Grail tradition. Now, if that doesn't get your imagination stirred, I don't know what will. Very rare, uh, very rare anomaly, and like a hidden gem, I would say. Dr. Gilbert is also an expert trainer in sacred geometry and energetic practices for the subtle body. So I'm sure we will cross our metaphysical maps between East and West. That's at least my hope. And he is also the founder of Vesica Institute, where he is, in my estimation, reviving the traditions and initiations of the ancient mystery schools of antiquity with a worldwide audience, something that I hope emerges far and wide at this time of sea change in the epoch, I think this is going to sort of be a sign of things to come, more of the more of the population looking to get stuck into some more serious study and uh, esoteric wisdom as we try to evolve our consciousness on the planet. So Dr. Gilbert's work is leading that vanguard, and I'm very, very grateful to have his time here today to discuss his work and the intersection of my work and where we're heading as a species on the planet. So thank you so much, Robert. Thanks so much for having me. I'm happy to be here with you. I usually start the podcast with a short quote, very pithy, maybe slightly deceptively simple, but I'm sure with your the magnitude of the breadth and depth of your knowledge, you can take it in so many different ways. The quote is, in order to go forward, sometimes we have to go back. Mm-hmm. Any thoughts on that? Absolutely. It's very similar to a saying in the European Rosicrucian tradition, which is, in the beginning was the memory. Now, what this means on a practical level is as a person's beginning to wake up and to become spiritually aware in a particular lifetime, one of the first things has to happen is to remember, who am I? Why am I here? What did I incarnate to do in the present incarnation? And so... We have to look back to get a sense of what's happening in this physical world that we incarnate into, and also, who am I? Why am I here? What is this all about? So I'm a very big believer in that principle, 
because I, I don't believe that the higher levels of spiritual development are even possible without looking back into an understanding of, of who we are, our own karmic biography, in a sense, to get a sense of where we're going to, how has the past been a prologue to the future. And that's on a macrocosmic scale, the same issue we have with what's happening on the entire planet. We have to understand some sense of the patterns in the past that have gotten us here to know how we're going to steer things to go, hopefully in an increasingly beneficial direction in the future. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a great, um, that's perfectly put and, and a great segue, particularly to separate the microcosm of the individual's soul pattern, karmic trajectory, and then to put that in light as a mirror to the cosmic one or the macrocosmic where our evolution as a species is, where culture is developing the epoch of, let's say, a zodiac or an archetypal, uh, you know, civilization. And so that, that would lead me uh, to my next sort of invitation for you. And the broadest picture possible can be from the Rosicrucian mentality philosophy, but could be others because you're so well read and represent a number of esoteric traditions. But are there more meta maps, cosmologies, mythologies, prophetic uh, uh, suggestions that you'd like to you know, bring in now as we sort of construct a dialogue together where we can really find ourselves in a particular kind of place that really helps us orient like almost a map. Are there ones that are really, you know, sort of specific to how you, to how you orient your students or is there one that you'd like to share at the outset of our conversation, a prophecy, a mythology, a cosmological view for example, the the yuga system of the ancient Buddhist and, and, and Indian yoga traditions, I think, gives us a large map to contextualize where we find ourselves right now in time and place. Maybe there are others in the Rosicrucian or the Western esoteric traditions. I'd invite you to just offer a little taste of that. Thank you. So speaking of the four yugas, one of the very interesting overlaps between different traditions is that many traditions from the Himalayas see the Kali Yuga, the Dark Age, as something that's going to last for a lengthy span of time ahead of us. So we're fairly deep in the process. But it's interesting to see that in the work of Rudolf Steiner, who's perhaps the most advanced Rosicrucian initiate ever to make himself public, and in the work coming from the Babaji lineage of the Himalayas, as expressed by uh, Babaji's student, Sri Yukteswar, in his book, The Holy Science. They both describe the Rosicrucian tradition with Steiner, the uh, Kriya Yoga tradition with Sri Yukteswar. They both describe the end of the Kali Yuga happening in 1899. And so that's, I think, a very interesting perspective. One aspect of this is that the end of a great age is not something that just ends like a snap of the fingers, and now everything's completely healed and better and fantastic. There's always a transition period that's very challenging, and sometimes it's darkest before the dawn. There can be tremendous challenges happening during this transition period. So if we look at this historically, we can see that amazing things did happen around the year 1899. 
One aspect of this is that for the first time in human history, we had the, the growth of a mass movement in spirituality around the world, really being based to begin with, with the Theosophical Society and its branches around the world, in which they created places that people could come together to share spiritual knowledge, spiritual wisdom from multiple traditions in a free way that wasn't like, well, you're part of this one tradition and you'll be a part of this for the rest of your life and this is what we believe and we don't listen to anybody else. It was really a place to start sharing knowledge that led to what we think of as the New Age movement today. So that was a major movement in human history to have what we have today with so many millions of people around the world are not a part of one strict spiritual tradition. They're really on a path of what Rudolf Steiner would call independent initiation. They're getting knowledge from multiple sources, like the old ideal of the hermetic tradition. So we can be open to knowledge from all kinds of different sources. And so around 1899, we see that happening. Now, at the same time, we see a tremendous revolution in scientific knowledge that has completely transformed the planet in the hundred plus years since 1899. Now, this made possible more sharing freely of spiritual knowledge around the world through the modern technologies, everything from book printing to then the radio then to television and now to the Internet. One of the tremendous movements we've had in recent times is something I often refer to as both a blessing and a curse. And that is we have unprecedented access within human recorded history to spiritual knowledge and wisdom from traditions all over the world. And things that used to be highly secret, you spend your whole life looking for fragments of this. Things that were highly secret, you can now buy a book on it for like 1695, like some of the very secret Taoist formulas for internal alchemy and internal transformation. Until the 1980s, this stuff was super hidden. Now you can get that information. So that's the benefit. It's an incredible time to be alive with access to so much information. But the curse of it is that a lot of this information has come out piecemeal, and it's come out in fragments, and often sensationalized, or sometimes slightly twisted, so that we don't necessarily get a clear picture of how all the pieces fit together. And we then run up against the problem that was talked about in classical traditions, which really emphasized staying in one tradition and going deep in it, where they said if you dig a lot of small holes, you'll never find water. But if you dig deep in one place, then you'll get to the water, with the water being the metaphor for spiritual knowledge, spiritual development. And so we live at this incredible time with so much information available. But the challenge is, how are we going to put these broken pieces back together into a coherent worldview that leads to a path of personal development that at the time that we cross through the gate of death, we've actually transformed our consciousness, transformed our subtle bodies in a way that's permanent, and that leads to a bettering of the human condition across the planet. So looking at that particular map of the yugas, whether one believes that the yugas, Kali Yuga will last for a great period longer, which is believed by many Himalayan traditions, or you follow the line of the Babaji lineage and of 
the European Rosicrucians that it ended in 1999 with a difficult transition period happening now, we can then find an overlay of other maps to see a more complex picture of what's happening. So as an example, in the Western tradition, one of the maps to understand particular time periods and what is the the zeitgeist, the spirit of that age, is mm. the map that comes from the Christian tradition in Europe and also used by the Euro- European Rosicrucians for understanding the seven archangelic ages. Mm. So our great cosmic clock is, of course, the precession of the equinox, where the visible position of the sun at the vernal equinox moves back slightly every year until in a period of 2,160 years, the sun's apparent position at the vernal equinox against the stellar background has moved 30 degrees back in the zodiac through one entire sign of the zodiac. So to go one degree takes 72 years. That's the average lifetime of a human being. The entire process takes 2,160 years. So with as understood in classical traditions like, let's say, the Vedic tradition from India, all of the planetary forces that exist around us are the repositories of particular divine energies, particular divine states of consciousness, and they're part of a divine timing system, which was the original foundation of things like Vedic astrology, which we can talk a little bit about in just a moment. But with the understanding of this, If it takes 2,160 years for the sun's position in the great cosmic clock to go through one of the 12-fold divisions of the zodiac, and we divide that amongst the uh, seven archangels, each of which rules over a particular planetary force, then that gives us a little over 300 years for every one of these archangelic rulerships. And when we overlay that map, on top of this yuga map, as seen by Babaji lineage, uh, European Rosicrucians, then the most recent shift happened in the year 1879. 1879 was the beginning of the 300-plus-year rulership of what's considered to be the highest of all the archangels in the Western tradition. So that's Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. And so the being of Archangel Mikael is the being that becomes dominant here, and he's the Archangel of the Sun. So it's the all the powers of the Sun coming forward. Now we can see that from 1879, overlapping that 1899 end of the Kali Yuga Dark Age. So the interesting part of this is that, again, the forces coming from the end of the Dark Age into an age of light have led to a tremendous release of spiritual knowledge even though it is in a very fragmented and not completely coherent form at the moment. Mm. But another aspect of this is if we look at, okay, if we're in a period of this solar power, the sun is the source of light. So if we're going to transition from this dark age, having this archangelic age of light is certainly a good thing. It's the time of the sun. That There's another aspect to it as well, and that is the specific qualities that are associated with Archangel Mikael in the Western tradition are things like the aspect of Mikael where he is the regent of the cosmic intelligence. So what they mean when they say that in the Western tradition, Mikael is the regent of the cosmic intelligence. 
is that long ago, the primeval gnosis, the original knowledge coming from the divine, broke up and split amongst the different traditions of the world. So in one particular place, they received certain aspects of spiritual knowledge and wisdom. Other aspects went to another tradition. And, of course, there were some universal uh, teachings that went to everybody, things that were so fundamental that you couldn't do without it. But you then had some aspects of specialization. So if you look at things like, let's say, the subtle body maps coming from mm-hmm. India versus those in China versus those in Greece versus those in Egypt, etc., mm-hmm. you can see a particular emphasis on pieces of knowledge that were really cultivated in different traditions. And when you put those pieces of knowledge together, it often illuminates something much bigger, much more profound when you can see it from these multiple perspectives. So with Archangel Mikael being the region of the cosmic intelligence and him having the current rulership of the age that we live in right now, starting in 1879, then this helps to explain what's happening with this growth of a free esotericism that I described a moment ago, really cultivated by the Theosophical Society, which, not coincidentally, began its work around the world in the 1870s, at the time of Archangel Mikael becoming the the zeitgeist, the spirit of the age. So if we see it from that perspective, what I just mentioned about the blessing and the curse of the release of all of the spiritual information is deeply entwined with the current archangelic rulership. And so what Archangel Mikael tries to develop with this release of the information is to create a healing of the human understanding of who we are as spiritual beings in a physical body and the earth itself as a alchemical laboratory for beings to go through spiritual development processes through physical incarnation. And so the goal of this is to be able to create a new spiritual science, to create a universal spiritual science that brings in the knowledge that was broken up amongst all the different traditions into a coherent, unified system. And every human being is challenged to work with these pieces and create a system that works for their particular path of development. So if we see it from that perspective, we're moving into a very interesting time right now where we need to find the pieces that are directly relevant to us as individuals and to be able to create a coherent spiritual path out of that. If we're not going to follow a very set path from a specific tradition, which otherwise would lead us to our goal. But for a lot of people today, their soul is simply not in resonance with that. They're not ready to have a particular human being become their guru that gives them the answers to everything. They want to be able to figure it out for themselves. Now, this is greatly challenging because it requires much more independent thinking and very deep thinking activity and learning and searching and questioning to unite this together into a system that actually works for us today. But I do think this is a very helpful map, seeing the overlap of the map of the yugas with the archangelic ages to understand what is the opportunity in this specific time period. And I'll just end up this little bit by saying, this is something that's reflected very deeply in Vedic astrology. In Vedic astrology, there's the understanding 
of something they call the Dasha system. The Dasha system does not exist in Western astrology, and it's a great loss for Western astrology because the Dasha system is when particular planetary forces get activated in an individual lifetime. And the way it's described in the Vedic tradition is that it will show you through these activations of the planetary forces in your own chart when certain karmas are ripening in your life. The karmic seeds that we've laid before, they could ripen at any moment. But this tells you when that ripening will be. So at a microcosmic level, the knowledge within Vedic astrology of a dasha system becomes a map for an individual to know where their specific karmas will ripen and certain challenges in life will come up and certain opportunities in life will come up, just as with the grand map of the yugas and the archangelic ages, we can get a sense of when certain karmas are ripening for all of humanity mm. for us to go through as part of a system of initiation trials to take us closer to our goal. I think that's a, a great introduction to your synthetic approach. I mean, I feel a lot of resonance with it because I mean, in my own work, I'm also someone who's deeply entrenched in a number of different cross-cultural and interdisciplinary disciplines in a way. So I've, I feel that your energy is really bringing a number of different maps together, the larger cosmic maps from multiple traditions, as well as the inner maps. And there's something there's something really potent there because I do think that these maps are helpful in orientation. So what you've just described with the archangel, uh, Michael, I think someone who's just caught in the in the weeds here where we are on the planet right now feels that things are breaking down. I mean, there's a major systems breakdown right now when we're obviously in a reboot. But if you don't have any orientation, you don't have any particular kind of spiritual lens or worldview can be enormously distressing. Even there's can be a sense of hopelessness. And what I what I also resonate with the Yutekshwar model. I mean, he he's one of the fewer that suggests we're out already out of the Kali Yuga. So this kind of doomsday a- a- attitude that we're in the darkest age and you know it's an age of degeneration. Actually, we're in Dwapara, Dwapara which is on the upswing. We're heading towards the Satya Yuga, and we've already passed. And this is an optimistic, I think, encouraging, uh, you know, uh, an, an analysis out of Yippee, the holy science that we're actually in the midst of the Dwarpa or the early, the early phase of the Dwarpa Yuga, and we're on, we're not on the downswing anymore. We're on the upswing to Satya, which means consciousness is expanding. This accounts for our interest in psychedelics, the psychedelic revolution, for example. This accounts for how, you know, interest in spiritual traditions may be devoid of the dogma, you know, taking it out of out of uh, a literal interpretation and putting it back in a more esoteric lens. This is more this is happening because of where the collective humanity is on the trajectory, the long trajectory, the long arc. And I, I you use this seven um, seven angel model, which I'm not familiar with. Uh, but I am familiar, more familiar with the 12 zodiacal uh, signatures, let's say. And there again, you find yourself in a transition between the Piscean and the Aquarian age. And what is the Aquarian signature, if not it is decentralization? So across the world, we're seeing how 
we're going from a hierarchical model to a more mandalic model. Uh, model. And if you get that, if you understand where we're heading and you understand the signature that it's it's um, the signature of the new age, you you can you can be receptive to it rather than averse to it and holding on to the old age. <clears throat> so I think this kind of work that you're doing it prepare it's preparing people. It's giving them a framework to understand what's actually happening around us is a necessary kind of civilizational death so that there can be a rebirth. And this, this model that you're using the seven angels, you know, I'm not very familiar with it, but I, I, I pause here to invite you now to give it a little bit more breadth, if you will. I mean, I'm not familiar with Rosicrucian, Rosicrucian philosophy. Maybe we can start by giving an introduction to where it comes from and how you intersected with it personally. Okay. So, my connection in this lifetime with the Rosicrucian tradition uh, really came about as a result of a particular spiritual awakening experience that I had after I left the Marine Corps. And I had been an instructor as uh, in the nuclear, biological, chemical warfare survival field for some time. And then when I got out of the Marine Corps, I, I had a particular awakening experience on the on a summer solstice. I didn't even know it was a summer solstice. I wasn't tracking those things at that time. But I had some remarkable experiences. And in hindsight, I could understand that these were linked to things that are discussed in classical traditions, particularly the Western tradition, for example, of what in the Jewish Kabbalah is described as the seven heavenly halls. It was understood that we pass through these seven heavenly halls between death and rebirth in the ancient traditions, they're illustrated in the Egyptian book of coming forth into light, which we call the Egyptian book of the dead. It then passed into the Jewish Kabbalistic tradition. They talked about the seven halls. It's directly related to the seven planetary forces. And so in this classical tradition, they understood that we have a particular journey that we go through. As we leave one lifetime, we learn the particular lessons and benefits from it. And then we come back into the next lifetime. We pass through the seven halls, which is actually what one experiences at a higher spiritual level without the physical references for the spiritual beings and activities around each of the seven planetary forces. So I had particular experiences, particularly related to the sphere of the sun during my awakening experience, where I remembered certain things about passing through the sphere of the sun which, of course, is related to Archangel Mikael. So without going into too much detail about my own experience, I then came to a place where it's like by that morning of that incredible experience, I was like, okay, my life has changed. I need to now figure out what just happened and get a frame of reference for this and how it's going to change my life moving forward. So I began to research a lot of different esoteric material from many different traditions, and I found a one-to-one match between what I had experienced and certain things described in some of the most advanced work of Rudolf Steiner, again, mm. who is essentially the most advanced Rosicrucian teacher ever to make themselves public. Because it's a great sacrifice for an advanced teacher of a tradition to make themselves public uh, because it really changes their whole life from that point on. 
But I found that this was explaining exactly what I had experienced. It puts it into context. And so with that, I then went in with both feet into the European mm-hmm. Rosicrucian tradition, which was I was very resonant with and made immediate sense to me. Spent many years working my way through college while I was working on my PhD in studying this vast corpus of, of knowledge. Steiner himself, if you have his published books, which is maybe a couple of dozens of books that he wrote, and then all of his collected lectures, it's like around 350 volumes. It's massive. It's an encyclopedia of deep esoteric knowledge. And so there's so much in it. Steiner himself said when he gave this work out in the early 1900s, he says, the work I'm giving out is actually not so much for right now. It's for the people Mm. coming at the turn of the century. At the turn of the century, the year 2000, that we're living in right now, that we're part of those people he was talking about would incarnate at this time. He said this would be one of the greatest mass incarnations of advanced initiates from multiple traditions at the same time that has ever occurred on the earth because of what was happening with some of these time cycles and certain things that need to happen on the planet at this time. And so there's a huge amount of material then being given out by him in a very clear preparatory way for us right now, the people coming for this, in a way that's going to give us access to formerly hidden. It's a taste of fall, a day not to miss. Information. So that's how I got started with it. And then it's it's very it's very synchronistic with what the Dalai Lama has recently said about the Tantras, where these were very, very hidden, ear whispered, student disciple only revealed after a lot of intense preparation. And in the last 50 years, the, the lifetime of the Dalai Lama, those teachings have become public in such a radical way. Un, never before mm-hmm. has that much esoteric knowledge been delivered so just to come back to your overarching point this am i correct in assuming that this is what mikhail energy it's an indication of a mikhail energy would is that sort of the how you would describe it this sort of illumination a period of vast illumination of sacred knowledge because of the the necessity of the long cycle in which we find ourselves absolutely that's definitely a part of it So first we have to understand, because we live in a very materialistic age, it's hard for people even to conceptualize the nature of non-physical beings and non-physical processes because we're so materialistic. And so if we're going to understand something like an archangel or these higher beings, we need to understand that in the Western tradition, there's a, a system coming originally out of the Kabbalah, then into Christian esotericism, that has to do with different ranks of spiritual beings. And when we talk about ranks, we're talking about levels of evolution and maturity, ages like generations of these beings. So at the very top, we have the seraphim, the spirits of love. They are the closest to the Godhead. They're the most ancient. They are so highly developed, their nature is love. And because of that, they are said to have an unbroken view of the Godhead, of the divine. But you can only have when your beingness is love, because love is the essence of becoming one, of union, not being separate. Then you have the cherubim, 
and the curiosities and the dynamis and a whole group of other beings at multiple levels. Every one of these are beings that have been emanated from the one, from the Godhead, from the unified source, to go through processes of becoming self-aware and to be able to become creative beings in the cosmos. So in the Rosicrucian tradition, there are certain esoteric names for each of these ranks of beings. Archangels are just one rank, and they're relatively close to us compared to those of cherubim or seraphim. But their esoteric name indicates things related to their power and to what their function is in the world today. So a being like Archangel Mikael, as the most advanced being of this rank, connected to the sun, the source of light and heat and life for our entire solar system, is a very, very advanced being. So often these things are dealt with as a a kind of a metaphor or some type Mm. of uh, philosophical teaching. But the essence of any initiatory process is to begin to perceive these beings in a direct way in which we understand these are not just projections of my psyche. They're not just a metaphor. These beings are more advanced and more real than I am. They're much more Mm. ancient. The old texts refer to them as the great ancient ones, way older than we are. Even an angel is so far above a human being in its potential evolution that its relationship to us is very similar to a relationship of a human being with a dog. If we're good people, we take care of the dog, we look after it. And the same thing is true for the way an angel, like the guardian angel in the Western tradition, looks after a human being. Not a metaphor. It's a real thing. You can become aware of these beings in our energy field and how they interact with us. And so a being like Archangel Mikael at a grand level of a planetary archangel administering this, it's something that is a real being that has real effects. I often like to say that human beings today are like fish in the ocean that don't know that water exists. The water is the spiritual world. It's all around us at all times. Spiritual beings are swimming through our energy fields at all times, leaving traces of emotions and thoughts and impulses as they transit through our fields. But most people have no concept of this. And so we're really at a point today as we take advantage of this opening of the Mikaelic age to create a universal spiritual science, freely taking the knowledge from multiple traditions. And we should take this as something intensely fun, pleasurable, and beneficial for ourselves. It's not like, oh, what a bunch of hard work. It's like, good God, what an incredible opportunity for people that remember past lifetimes where we would suffer and struggle for tiny little bits of knowledge from one particular tradition, to have this smorgasbord available is is sometimes rather overwhelming. Steiner himself in the Rosicrucian tradition would talk about the way that people who are coming to incarnate at this time, around the year 2000, around the turn of the century, he said that they were being prepared for this in the school of Mikael. So as we pass through the seven heavenly halls between death and rebirth, as we pass through the sun hall, there was a kind of cosmic school that we went through with Archangel Mikael. We received certain teachings. If If we're not advanced enough to hold that teaching clearly in our conscious mind, what happens is that the teaching goes into our will, and it becomes a will impulse that drives us to find certain things, to do certain things 
until we can remember, like we talked about in the beginning, remember, who am I? Why am I here? What did I incarnate to do in this incarnation? Well, let me let me ask a couple questions because it's so rich. Um, <laughs> I mean, I live in Bali, right? And the, the Balinese, their ancient philosophy includes spiritual realms where there are entities and angelic beings, ethereal beings. And I, I suppose we can say, you know, it's really Western, scientifically minded, modern type people that have lost connection to a greater source and the, you know, the sense that there is dimensionality beyond the five senses, that that is one of our curses or our burdens of the age of the reason or the enlightenment period. But it's not true that other cultures still existent today, whether it be the shamans in the Amazon or the First Nations elders, uh, the aboriginals in Australia, there are pockets of people who still maintain this worldview. And within them, I think it's safe to say that there are not all ethereal or energetic or angelic beings have our best interest. <laughs> that they're all, we also have to be careful. I mean, what I'm saying is that one of the things that caught my attention with what you're saying is that there, this is not just an archetype. This is not just a projection of our own unconscious, as maybe Jung would suggest. Mm-hmm. There are actual energetic beings around us all the time. And if you live in Bali and you're not making offerings on a daily basis, you the Balinese know that they leave themselves open and exposed and may possibly even vulnerable to the intersection of maybe some of the malevolent forces that also exist. So it's not all a happy family out there. And if you if you're nodding your head in agreement, then, you know, what is going on in that dimension right now? Are we experiencing a heavy set knockout, heavyweight, you know, war happening on the spiritual? What is happening as does, does the archangel Michael or the energy that it represents also have a counterpart? And, and what does it look like in, in our, in our ordinary perception, particularly someone who doesn't have an esoteric lens, let's say? How is that war being played out if you agree that there is a kind of war happening or at least a tension between polar extremes of virtue and vice? Um, you know, what do you have to, any comments about that? Sure, absolutely. Uh, in my series on Gaia television called Sacred Geometry, I devote an entire episode to a teaching coming from the European Rosicrucian tradition that is really a part of an ancient lineage. When we talk about the Rosicrucian tradition, it became known to the public around the 1600s in Central Europe. But it's really a modern appearance of what before it was the Holy Grail tradition that started around the ninth century in Europe. And before that, the Essene tradition. And before that, the Egyptian tradition. It evolves over time with this core knowledge. Okay, we're going to have to... Take a break here. Hold that thought, everybody. I am so amazed what we're getting to um, work together with, with this energy. So let's take a little break, and um, we'll be back in about 10 or so minutes, and you will have some music, and we'll have a visit from our brother Richard, and a look at the stars and Tanya Gabrielle as well. Okay, and so see you in a little while. Thank you so much. Thank you. Namaste. Oh. 
Uh-oh. Mm-hmm. Are you there, Richard? Um, Doug, can you see if Richard's there? I'm here. Oh, okay. Greetings, Commander. Hey there. Okay, I got the computer operating the way I like it. All right. Yeah, well, I'm not going to go through the ugly details of a 10-year-old computer. Okay, looking at the chart, what do you see there? If you've got a clear sky, you can see the moon. And oh, Jupiter. it's cloudy here. It's cloudy here. Yeah, well, the moon is up, and it was conjunct yesterday with Jupiter. And tonight, they are... Uh, Jupiter is at 6, and the moon is at 27, so they're 21 degrees apart. So that'll give you an idea. You can do this any time we've got a clear sky. You know, you can uh, look up their positions, and you can get an estimate. So I, I, could, I got an idea of what 20 degrees apart looks like in the sky, right? So let's let's start with Venus in Scorpio at 24 degrees. It's now 175 degrees from Uranus. All right. So the squeeze. I'm going to call this condition the squeeze is on right because as Venus moves into Sagittarius in a few days it'll be even closer to Uranus and everything else will be will be between Uranus and Venus except for the moon of course right so we got we got moon opposite Venus and it's not really, but it's kind of square to Saturn over there at uh, three Pisces. So you got that T square, Moon, Saturn, Venus. We got a couple other squares. We got you know Pluto square to Moon, and Pluto Venus is going to square Pluto exactly here in a day or so and so that's all troublesome or challenging whatever word you like now uh, they prefer prefer challenging to distressing (laughs) yeah okay so the sun's at two capricorn mercury retrograde is at 29 sads and Mars is at 22, Sag. Okay. So there's uh, Sun Trine Jupiter at 6 
Taurus. And it's conjunct Mercury, so we'll throw that in there with it. So Sun conjunct Mercury, retrograde, trine, Jupiter. That just makes the conjunction more potent. It's, you know, it feeds. Jupiter's way, way out there outside of, of the Earth orbit. But the sun is at the inside of the Earth orbit. Mercury's inside of the Earth orbit. Right. Yeah, so that's, you know, we're making, doing this transition from Sagittarius fire down to Earth vibration in Capricorn. So that's, that's a thing. Yeah. And uh, this week, as we go forward, we'll get uh, we'll get more more. We should be feeling more grounded as Mercury gets into Capricorn, even though it's retrograde. It should help help the process of staying centered and not being kicked around by all the other energies. Right now, all right. So this says here. Let's see here. Okay, Pluto's at 30. Capricorn. And uh, Saturn's at 3. Neptune's at 25. Pisces. Oh, shit. I didn't mean to do that. Okay. Uh, Let's see here. Going, Going around Neptune. Uh, Chiron's still at 16. Stationary direct. All right. That's good. For Chiron. Yeah, 15, 16 Aries. And it's been retrograde. It's going to go direct. And I think, uh, I think that covers everything. Mars 22 SADs. And the moon's at 27, Taurus. All right, then. Let's go listen to Kaipacha here, and I'll uh, fix my fumble finger. Okay. Okay. You know, I I accidentally closed the tab with my charts Mm -hmm. on it. (laughs) Now i got to go back in and get back into Astro. All right. Oh, yeah, you do. Yeah. What? Well, we uh, got 32 minutes for you to do that with. <laughs> yeah. All right. That's, that's All right. Plenty to say here. Here we go. It's Guy Pacha with the weekly Pele report on Wednesday, December 20th of 2023. And I'm on a curved path here. This is a no fuss, no must report. The moon is in Aries. Okay, Mars up there in Sagittarius. Up oh, there's an opening, a clearing. Yes. <laughs> Let's get out of the woods. <laughs> 
This is a very interesting time period. The sun is moving into Capricorn. Yes, the longest night of the year in the northern hemisphere. And as soon as it does that, retrograde Mercury, sun conjunct Mercury is exact. Yes, just so the sun goes in there on uh, tomorrow and the hits Mercury on Friday and continues moving on. In the meantime, what else do I want to talk about today? There's so much going on. The other thing I'm really feeling, you may be feeling it too, is Venus opposite Uranus. It's exact today and goes into tomorrow. Mars at the same time is in conjunct Uranus. So we're going to be talking about Uranus and this whole archetype of Aquarius Uranus as being contrary, let's say, to the Saturnian Capricornian uh, energy that uh, we also need to be dealing with. Uh, I want to talk about and read you the Sabian symbol for Pluto has gone into the 29th degree of Capricorn. It's a critical degree. And I'm going to explain a little bit about what that means. What else is happening? Chiron is stationing to go direct next Tuesday. And Chiron will continue direct. Okay, it's now at 15 degrees, 27 minutes. And it's going to go all the way up to 24 degrees. So from 15 to 24, Chiron is going to be moving along, okay, through the year of 2024. Any of you have got planets 15 to 24 degrees of the cardinal signs, you'll be receiving a visit, yes, from our good wounded healer, Chiron. Um, after, uh, after that, uh, Venus opposes Uranus. The, the nice thing is, is that, uh, she is going to come into a trine with Neptune. Yeah. That is happening next Monday. So the moon is just carrying along. It's coming and, you know, it's, it's waxing, getting bigger every day. And it's going through, uh, Taurus on Thursday. Okay. And, uh, there it's, uh, going to trine Mercury up there and conjuncts Jupiter, then moves into Gemini on Sunday. And by golly, if we don't have a full moon happening, okay, that full moon is happening next Tuesday. It's at four degrees, 58 minutes of Cancer. She's at home in Cancer. She's strong in Cancer. And yeah, it is... A very powerful time to be spending with family, with friends, in a warm, intimate Christmas time, Christmas period of emotional connection. Let me just look at the camera and talk to you about this. All right, everybody. Decided to climb up the mountain today you can see there is right back there it's a very dirty river <laughs> it's been storming and raining and i've just decided that today rather than be i love the water and i love the waterfalls and the rapids and the flowing river but we also have to also balance that out water seeks the lowest level <laughs> It goes down 
down, down to the ocean. The rain falls from the sky. But the sun is entering Capricorn, the mountain goat that climbs to the top of the mountain and oversees, yes, the whole landscape. So there is this contrast, this polarity, and that is what I want to be addressing with you today. The light and the dark, the up and the down, the masculine and the feminine, the plus and the minus. It goes to blah, 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 blah. We live in this world of polarity, and there's lots of different pieces to this puzzle. And I hope you bear with me while I discuss a couple of the different pieces. And hopefully, by the end of the report, I can tie this together to make sense. (laughs) Are you ready? Okay, number one piece of that puzzle I've got to, I always start with Pluto. And Pluto is on the edge of Aquarius. It briefly entered in 2023, and it went retrograde. It's gone direct now, and it's back at 29 degrees. Okay, as of as of today, as of my talking, Pluto is right now entering the critical degree of 29 degrees Capricorn. It's going to stay there till January 22nd and break into Aquarius once again. But it goes so doggone slow that then it's going to turn retrograde and go back into Capricorn next summer before finally in November of 2024, it will make its final and then it's in Aquarius for 20 years till 2044. So we are on the cusp. We are on the edge. And what is this cusp? What is this edge? Okay. From Capricorn to Aquarius, from Saturn to Uranus, from the patriarchy to liberation, from the conventional normal structures and institutions and corporations that have been governing, you know, to break free, to break out into a new dimensional realm, into a new enlightened state. Aquarius wants to raise the bar. And this is not done. This isn't handed to us on a golden platter. <laughs> Let's put it that way. Right. Uh, I have a very interesting, uh, uh, you know, so anyway, all together, if we count the times when Pluto is at this 29th degree, it was at this 29th degree. Okay. Uh, you know, for basically six weeks going forward, then six weeks going retrograde. Now it's going to be four weeks going forward and it's going to be 10 weeks. Okay, it stations at this 29th degree next, you know, next summer. Okay, so all together, 26 weeks, okay, in 2023 and in 2024, the Sabian symbol is a secret meeting of men responsible for executive decisions in world affairs. The keynote is the power to assume responsibility for crucial choices arrived at after mature discussions with those who share this power. I want to emphasize the secret, (laughs) secret meetings, okay, of, yeah, of men, 
this, the patriarchy, right? Responsible for executive decisions in world affairs. I'm thinking of world organizations, the World Economic Forum, the World Health Organization, the United Nations, the, the, the list goes on. Okay, corporations, uh, you know, international, multinational corporations run by men in general. Uh, a lot of billionaires that are men meeting in secret, okay, to determine uh, the future of the planet. I mean, this is... This is very powerful. This is and, and and it's at this critical degree, the last degree of Capricorn, like the last holdout of the patriarchy. I mean, this is this is big. And now we have what? The sun moving into Capricorn, conjoining with Mercury at the first degree of Capricorn. The Sabian symbol for that is an Indian chief claims power from the assembled tribe. The power and responsibility, again, implied in any claim for leadership. So let's look at this. We've just had the sun transit through past the galactic center. I don't know if you felt it. Did you get your download? I hope so. (laughs) I got my download. (laughs) Boom. Download of natural law, yes, of the meaning of life, the purpose, the holy grail has been downloaded from the galactic center to our sun, the solar system, right? And now the sun moves into Capricorn and takes on the responsibility of implementing in Earth, Capricorn is this Earth sign, of implementing these natural laws into institutions, governments, laws, rules of order, structure on this planet. And in our psyche, in each one of us. And that's what now what I need to address because this is very powerful now that Mars has been trying Chiron and now is trining the north node of the moon. This is our future path forward, our future destiny has to do with our mantra for this week. Oh, great. It's starting to rain. <laughs> well, this is, this is part of what I, we're needing to do is break through. Yeah. That's, that's what the mantra is about today. And here we have, in contrast to all this Saturn, Capricorn, Pluto, power, uh, you know, control, all this, you know, and, and very often externalized projected out onto others. I'm going to come back to that. Okay. We have Black Moon Lilith coming through fiery Leo into Virgo, going to oppose Capricorn, oppose Saturn up there in Pisces. And we've got Uranus moving through Taurus, self-sufficiency, and Venus going through the dark, watery realms of Scorpio, stirring up the pot today and tomorrow in opposition to this Uranus. That opposition is a fruition, a fulfillment, yes, of the liberated feminine energy, the Kali energy, while she's in Scorpio. Yeah, very, another powerful image finally then we have the moon 
coming into her fullness in opposition <laughs> to the light of the sun up there in the hierarchical realm of Capricorn. Whew. Yeah. Polarity. I'm going to talk more about these polarities, but first I got more Sabian symbols. Ah! <laughs> the full moon Sabian symbol is a little dangerous. At a railroad crossing, an automobile is wrecked by a train. The tragic results which are likely to occur when an individual's will pits itself carelessly against the power of the collective will of society. You get this. Here's the, the, this moon in cancer, my inner child, my inner feelings, my desire for security and safety, you know, you know, in opposition to this Capricorn, right? Uh, the collective, there's this whole collective energy. There's so it's the individual at odds. Yeah. Going up against polarized from. This collective will dominated by men meeting in secret and making mandates and things and whatever. <laughs> and it's just. But finally. Venus moving through Scorpio in opposition to Uranus is at the 20th degree of Scorpio. A woman draws away two dark curtains closing the entrance to a sacred pathway the revelation to the human consciousness of what lies beyond dualistic knowledge i'll read the whole thing the woman within in quotes the faith that is rooted in the deepest intuitions of the soul is seen here as the hierophant unveiling the realities which the either or pro and con mind of humanity alone cannot perceive the path to the mystics in quotes unitive life is opened up once the darkness of fear egocentricity and dualistic morality is removed. The key note is to plunge ahead into the unknown. Uranus rules the unknown. Aquarius is the unknown. And Scorpio also deals with what lies behind the veil and is unknown. So it was brought to my attention while the sun was conjunct the galactic center that the universe and we live in this spherical universe, this spherical reality and the sphere is held apart by polarity. Without polarity, without this dualistic, polarized reality, 
It would be like the universe could collapse upon us. We live in a world of polarity, and this polarity is very necessary. It's a fundamental aspect, not only of our thinking, but of, yes, our counterpoint awareness evolves through polarity. We have to have these polarities. But I'm feeling, seeing today how to pierce through the polarity. What came to me this morning is that the light is in the dark. We need to go through the polarity. We need to go through the dark. We need to own our shadow rather than project it. Yeah. So rather than projecting, what can we project out there now? This is part of Chiron in Aries healing that wounded warrior, the North Node in Aries. This is regaining our sense of power. And part of that is becoming conscious and owning our truth. And what is that truth? Rather than project it out that there's a bunch of control freaks and psychotic nuts that are power mongers and power hungry and want to take control of the world and, da, 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 and, and we're victims and there's all that. No. No, we no, no. withdraw our projections. We take it within us that we I want power and I've got anger and I've got fire and I need to fire up my will forces. I need to own my anger, which isn't so light and spiritual and fluffy and connection and sweet and da 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 da. We are both. We need to go through this darkness. We need to own our darkness. We need to own that, yes, I'm a nice guy and (laughs) I've got desires and I've got wants. And when I don't get what I want, I am frustrated, irritated, angry, upset. And rather than stuff that as not socially acceptable, not moral or ethical, not nice. Uh, My partner's not going to like it. My family's not going to like it. This is Christmas. Let's just keep all that, you know, darkness in the cellar and pour the champagne. (laughs) Uh, This is more about Venus and Scorpio wants the truth and reality. Mars and Sagittarius wants the truth, right? You know, the sun beaming through Mercury is... And when is retrograde Mercury is rebelling. Even the 270 degrees square, yes, which is zero degrees Capricorn, right? Uh, Aligns with that. The sun and Mercury conjoin right at that degree. And that degree is a crisis in consciousness that wants to break free and liberate itself from cultural norms and from the convention and the conventional way. 
of looking and responding. Ah, so yes, this is a time for us to pull back the veils and move through this dualism, through ownership of It's not either or. It's not that I am light or dark. I am both and more. We want to ascend. We want to move up. We want to move beyond. We want to move out. And this requires engaging the will. And this is a very powerful black moon Lilith moving, you know, moving through Leo. Okay, Mars in fiery Sagittarius. Uh, you know, with the moon today, as I'm talking, <laughs> in Aries, with the North Node and with Chiron, and even with Eris, this great goddess of discord who wants to shake our cages and rattle us up. We need to take ownership of our Kundalini. We need to take ownership of this Plutonian power and not allow ourselves to be victimized, not allow ourselves to buy into the stories that we are being told, and that we have been told. And we do tell ourselves stories. I was going to share a story of my own. Well, there's time. (laughs) I mean, we've been given stories, right? I mean, I was given stories that, you know, you grow up and you get married and you have a family and you get a job and Da, 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 you know, and don't be a musician or don't be an astrologer. You're not going to make a living. You know, you got to do something. Da, da, da. Anyway, you know, so you know, I go out. And even though I get into astrology as a teenager, I look at my chart. Oh, sun conjunct Uranus. Well, Uranus is electronics. Uranus is computers and technology and science. Well, by God, I'm going to be an electronics engineer. And I get my degree and I go to Silicon Valley, the, you know, the, the belly of the beast. <laughs> and I get my job at virtual microsystems <laughs> and I get married and I have kids and I buy a house and I've got a car <laughs> and I'm telling myself and I am miserable in this job. <laughs> And I'm looking for some soul and some juice and some love and some passion and some fire and some, ah, and the new paradigm. And I, you know, I mean, for years, I'm just like, uh, 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 but what did I do? I told, I had that story and I told myself over and over again, this is good. You have to understand you know, the system in order to, you know, change it or beat it. You've got to go into it. Don't be an outsider. You won't have any impact. Or I told myself one story after another, you know, monogamy and marriage and kids and fed. This is the, this is the way that my parents did it. And I mean, we've all got stories and there will be times. When Uranus comes around, Uranus will be going from 19 to 23 degrees of the fixed signs. And like lightning bolts, shaking and rattling and waking us up. And Uranus next year, oh, I'm doing the astrology of 2024. I'm going to do a general and I'm also going to do a specific. Mark your calendars, January 13th and 14th. I'm working on the web page now. Uh, so that we can get it up there and out. But 
Yeah, I'll be going much more deeply into this and and uh, uh, help you apply it to your personal chart on the um, January. Yeah. Anyway, 13th and 14th. Did I say 13th and 14th? Anyway, there is. Yes, there will be times. It will be a dream that you have. It will be a person that you meet. It will be, uh, you know, a book that you come across. It will be, uh, you know, a website or a Twitter or something that just, you know, it's like, whoa, 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 wait a minute, wait a minute. There's an alternate reality to what I am living. There is an awakened, enlivened, impassioned life that I can have. But I can only have when I break through into the unknown and I let go of the stories that I have been told by others who are not me. This is self-discovery. This is self-realization. This is awakening. This is ascension. This is Aquarius. This is what it is. We're moving into an age of enlightenment. Let's freaking get there. <laughs> oh, God. we got to lead the way. Yeah. So, yeah. The song for this week is, I mean, it's hard. It's a hard name. Where is it? Oh, my God. Gajum, Gujab, Gujab, Gajumaru, Gajumaru. Yeah, Gajumaru. And I, I have used this song once before, but I went up on the uh, Spotify, uh, the Pele Report um, playlist. There's 15 hours of songs. Yeah, and, but this is such a good one and it's so appropriate. Yes. Uh, you know, um, um, gosh, what is it now? Uh, letting go of all the stories I've been told. I walk through the valley of my own shadow. Check out that song. Very powerful, very good, very relevant. And before I get soaking wet, I'm going to read you the mantra. For this week, widespread beliefs are restricting in nature and creating a sense of lack. It's my job to break through old stories I'm told to bring joy and abundance back. There's a lot of programming going on. There's a lot of wetico. There's a lot of mind virus happening. There's a lot of propaganda out there. Yep. There's a lot of stories. We got to be really choosy and discriminate about which ones we want to own, which ones we want to take on, which ones we want to live, which ones we want to believe. So this, to me, is the sun moving into Capricorn. Yes, the sign of authority. Becoming the author of my own life, writing my own biography, writing my own story, writing my own future. It's time for each and every one of us to heal this wound of this Chiron in Aries, to engage our will forces. You want to get out there, you want to hike to the top of the mountain, or you want to ski down a mountain if it's snowing. 
or you want to go to the gym if it's too cold. You want to engage your will forces, your muscles, your adrenal glands. You want to wake up that powerful self within, and you want to own that desire for power. It's it's natural. Of course. Come on. We want to manifest our own destiny. This is part of the human equation. And it's perfectly fine and natural to get angry when we're being blocked or stopped or forced or coerced. So rather than stuff it, rather than be ashamed of it, rather than hide it, yeah, engage it, own it, use it, live it, move, move that energy, move that energy. If you got to break a couple dishes or something, you know, because it's built up over years, (laughs) let yourself. Feel the deepest, deepest feelings that you've possibly got because that is your root power. One more time, baby. Ow! Widespread beliefs are restrictive in nature and creating a sense of lack. It's my job to break through old stories, I'm told, to bring joy and abundance back. May you bring joy and abundance back. There was one more thing, one image that I had that I wanted to leave with you. And that is a nail. Think of a nail. Think of a bullet. Think of a spear. This is this masculine Mars trining the North Node, driving into the future. And you take a nail And you hold that to a piece of wood and you smack it with a hammer and it it opens the wood. It opens, it pierces the veil. It pierces the wood. It opens a hole. It, it, It spreads apart what appears to be solid, right? And it goes through it. But what's required? What's required is a good smack with a hammer. <laughs> I was a carpenter too, man. I know it is. It's like you've got to boom. And especially if it's a hard wood, you know, you can bend the nail sometimes. You know, sometimes you have to drill a hole first. But I mean, I'm saying, I'm saying there's a place. There's a time and a place for everything. And there's a time and a place to assert, to charge, to pierce to go into the unknown. And this is that time. (laughs) Pierce the darkness with your light. Namaste. Aloha. So much love. talking stick to you, Richard.
。あのー、うん。うん、シェフィングしてます。おー、オッケー。
to 23 Sagittarius, which is dancing around the galactic center. All right? Now, I've always, I've always had a problem when I try and share my uh, analysis astrologically speaking for, for your, for your uh, education and use here. Uh, but I have to deal with my own energy configuration, right? Mm-hmm. So this week, I, my Mercury is at 25 Scorpio. So I, you know, and my birthday is at 12 Scorpio, right? So this is the season when these energies cross through my my sun at Scorpio, my Mercury at Scorpio, and then in my own particular case, my Chiron is at 30 Sagittarius. So my own Chiron, my natal Chiron is, you know, right there conjunct within a couple of degrees at Galactic Center. Ooh, that's good. Uh, I suppose, I suppose. Yeah, you're taking out a, a whole mouthful on, though. Yeah, well, again, now, you know, now at, at this time, you know, Chiron's in Aries. Yeah. Right? It's a and, time to do it. It's the time to do it. Well, in general, my chart is set up in such a way as that I couldn't help become who I am. <laughs> Checkmate, huh? Uh, that's kind of true for everybody. That's true. It is. Yeah. So right now, Mercury, Mercury is sitting there on Galactic Center. <laughs> yeah. With my Chiron, Mars is on on that twenty seven degrees of Sagittarius, right there with Galactic Center. Yeah. Oh. So it's like that's why. That's why I have indicated to you previously that for the time being, chaos rules human activity on the planet. That's true. We're in a we're in a season of chaos. Oh my God. And it's supposed to be Christmas? Mm. Well again, Christmas is, is a celebration of an event. Alright? Yes. It doesn't matter what time of year the, the great human Jesus uh, came onto the planet and did his thing and, you know, left his message behind. You know, he's just another of a long line of teachers. Absolutely. You know, and we've got our own, we got our own modern versions of teachers with goodwill towards men. That's true. And uh, these days, you know, people are pretty much ignoring Martin Luther King Jr. Oh, absolutely. They're absolutely ignoring him. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. They're ignoring Nelson Mandela and his message. Absolutely. Yeah. They're ignoring Gandhi. Yeah. 
and his message. Yeah. Yeah. So that's that's just we just gotta live with that. Yeah. You know? Yeah. But what you can do is you can practice what I will call mental hygiene. Yeah. So practice your mental hygiene, and with the goal in mind, it's my goal, but you can you can use it if you want. Reduce your stress and your agitation. Yes, please. Pursue a calm and peaceful mind, even when you even when you have to be active. Be receptive. When you're when you're being active and and yang yang like, remember to be yin like, right? Yin and yang. Be receptive like, yes. Yeah. So, um, and just real quickly here, because I know time is short. Uh, last Sunday, I finished a book a paperback book that I'm informed has been used in college-level class. It's called Three Ways of Thought in Ancient China. Mm. Author Whaley, W-A-L-E-Y, published in 1948. So I had been working on that, you know. Uh, what year was that book? 48. Oh, okay. Hmm. He's one of those uh, uh, group of Chinese guys that were working in the 30s and 40s. All right, and and he got this is an anchor book. They're generally pretty good as a publisher. All right, I'm going to keep this short. So I finished that on the Sunday, and then. Be- uh, because of um, and there's a politics section in that in in that book it talks about politics and and how those ancient Chinese folks taught thought about politics right now they were mostly dealing with kings and their ministers you know and the problem the is that book the, again the, is the, the, three ways of cho- three ways of thought. Is there more to that book's name? In ancient China. All right. Thank you. Sorry. Yes. Thank you. So then I then I had to go back to one of my uh, old reliables, the wisdom of Lao Tzu. Lao Tzu. L a o t s e. I know what they call it. They say Lao Tzu. For you can say it however you want. I don't care. <laughs> this guy, this this translator, his name is Lin L I N Yu Tang Y U T A N G, and he's done several. He's got several publications, but he's he's real good. Lin and Yu the Tang, name of that book is what? The Wisdom okay. of Lao Tzu. Okay. Right. By Lin Yu Tang. Translated, edited, introduction and notes and commentary. And this one's 1948. This oh, is okay. from the modern, li- modern Library. 
Random House. Okay, the the, the Modern Library group of books is uh, lots of good stuff in there. Mm-hmm. And this is more specifically uh, the remnants, the writings of uh, Lao Tzu and Cheng Tzu. Which is a compatriot of his. They lived at pretty much at the same time. And uh, book four in this is called The Source of Power. And it's very interesting. And book five is The Conduct of Life. And book six is The Theory of God government and i started that section earlier today all right you got the art of government lazy government be (laughs) sparing building a big country big and small countries the good man's treasure difficult and easy these are all little short sections that you could do a reading and then meditate on it for a couple of hours while you're doing something else. Very, very useful book. Helps me with my peace of mind. So there's two book reports real quick there, and I will shut up and say good night, and we can go listen to uh, Tanya. Thank you, Richard. All right, have everybody have a good week. Happy New Year. Happy Winter Solstice. Happy Birthday, Jesus. And I'll talk to you next week. Thank you, Richard. Aloha. Aloha. All right. Over and out. Over and out. (laughs) Listening on the Internet. It's Tanya Gabrielle, Wealth Astrologist. Welcome to Star Codes. This is our weekly podcast where we look at an upcoming event in the stars and numbers. And in this case, it is the final lunation and the final full moon of 2023, the Cancer full moon. And the amazing thing is we began 2023 with the Cancer full moon on January 6th. That one was at 16 degrees Cancer. This final full moon in 2023 happens on December 27th, Universal Time, and December 26th in the Americas, and it occurs at 4 degrees Cancer. So we're going to look at those numbers in a moment in terms of the numerology and, of course, the whole astrology, the aspects, the numerology within the astrology, and so let's get started. This forecast is for all signs because all of us have cancer in our birth chart, so we have the moon in cancer at four degrees and the sun in Capricorn at four degrees somewhere in our birth chart, so the forecast applies to you and everyone else. So on December 27th, Universal Time at 12.33 a.m., in London, and that would be December 26th in the Americas at 7.33 p.m. Eastern, 4.33 p.m. Pacific, we have this amazing full moon in Cancer. And as I said, it happens at four degrees, and that actually is quite significant because in 2023, 
2024, which is just a few days after this final full moon in 2023, we are entering an eight universal year. And four is half of eight. So four is actually part of the 248 triad in numerology. And this is the manifestation triad. So we're being asked in the final days of the year to really look at what we want to manifest. What are we manifesting to begin with? Be very clear about that and take responsibility for it because the number four actually is all about responsibility. And Capricorn, where the sun is opposite the Cancer full moon, is also about taking responsibility. Capricorn is ruled by Saturn. And if you remember, Saturn recently moved into Pisces and also recently stationed direct at zero degrees Pisces after a long retrograde in that sign. And Saturn's sojourn in Pisces is huge because we're ending the Piscean age. And so Saturn is actually undoing what we need to undo. Pisces is the sign of self-undoing, which is basically saying undoing the ego and joining with the cosmos, joining with source, with God, becoming one with the all. And that's what Pisces stands for, is we are all one, having unconditional love for everyone. So Saturn in that sign is saying, take responsibility for everything in your life. And that begins with what it is you believe to be true regarding love, regarding our connectedness to everything. And that means there's no ego. With an ego, you feel separate. You feel better than or lesser than, whichever it is, right, at the time. But you certainly don't feel connected to others. And you certainly don't feel a sense of needing to have empathy for a viewpoint that you disagree with or don't understand. So Saturn in the sign is saying, okay, all of that needs to be looked at, which is basically what we are doing right now. We are dealing with a lot of oppositional energy and we are deciding, well, do I partake in the back and forth, the opposition, which is what a full moon is between sun and moon. They're in opposite signs. Or do I look at what it is we can agree upon that we all actually want in the end? Because in the end, we all want the same thing. We may go about it in very different ways, but hey, in the end, we all want to be happy and loved and have peace. So what this full moon in Cancer, which is the sign of love, it is the sign that the moon rules. So it is the sign of the heart, feeling, empathy, nurturing, the mother. When we have a full moon in that sign, we are really bringing things to a head. And the four degrees means get organized, get clear, get realistic about all those matters of the moon, matters that concern family. Cancer rules the fourth house, and this is a four-degree moon. So the family figures greatly. Your home figures greatly. Four governs the four, the square, the rectangle or the square, which is architecture, and is also your literal home. It is real estate, but it also is your actual home family, your genetic history, past lives, everything to do with family. So all of those are anyway in this time of year on our horizon, right? On our 
conscious awareness because of the holiday season. We're moving into New Year's at this time and we're celebrating often with loved ones, usually with family or with our partner or with good friends. Either way, they are people who we consider our closest confidants, ones that are our beloved. So then we want to look at some more of the details in this lunation. And that would mean looking at some of the aspects that other planets make. First to the sun and moon. And first and foremost, that would be Jupiter. Jupiter is at five degrees Taurus in retrograde and is creating a beautiful trine to the sun and a sextile to the moon. Jupiter is the planet that sees beyond the horizon, that has the bird's eye view, that is expansive, that feels joy, that sees the wisdom behind things, that includes others, other cultures, other countries. Jupiter rules the ninth house in astrology, which is the house of multiculturalism, of the world, of international travel, right? Of accepting of other people's differences. So it's a beautiful planet to create a harmonious triangle with, with the sun and moon. So that really is the most important aspect. But what I love too is there are two other sextiles that the sun makes to Saturn and then Saturn makes to Jupiter and Jupiter makes to the moon. So there are three all together. And you can see the blue lines. If you look at the chart, you can see the blue lines from the sun to Saturn, Saturn to Jupiter, and Jupiter to the moon. And those indicate a lot of harmony between those planets. And like I said, Saturn rules Pisces. Saturn is in the sign Pisces that Jupiter is the traditional ruler of. Before Neptune was discovered, because Neptune is the modern ruler of Pisces, Jupiter ruled Pisces. So we have this beautiful connection, not only of harmonious aspects, which are the actual geometric connections between the planets, but also between the signs and the planets that rule those signs themselves. And remember, Saturn rules Capricorn and the sun is in Capricorn. So this is really tremendous and it sets up a beautiful, very important opportunity here. Because not only is the sun trying to Jupiter, the moon is trying to Saturn, and it is sending us a message of getting serious about joy, about happiness, about gratitude. It's strange to say get serious about gratitude, but when you actually make it a part of your day where it's continuously inspiring you, especially during moments where you may not necessarily feel grateful, but you can use The idea that something that may feel challenging is for your highest good and turn it into a grateful moment, that is alchemy. That's you being the alchemist. That's you stepping in and saying, hey, I can control this. I can literally, by virtue of my attitude, my perception, make what feels really difficult into something that is like honey. And I trust that the honey will flow, the milk and honey, the sense of everything is good, goodness shall prevail, even in this stressful situation. And by saying that and giving gratitude, you take that moment of reflection or that moment of deep breathing and you remove yourself 
emotionally from the reactionary state, which is the ego state, which is the self undoing that Saturn is in the process of, you know, helping us all do in Pisces here. The self undoing is literally the saying no to the egoic way and saying yes to the way of love, the heart centered way. So this full moon and every full moon is an opposition. This full moon is showing us the opposite. So we're going to feel at times like we are going to take the ego route because it's familiar. We're used to it. It may be still easier, quote unquote, than stepping back and not reacting and taking a breath and listening but we will very quickly realize that it's not going to be the way that feels good. In fact, we'll be so quickly feeling not so good with that choice of the egoic way that we will learn rapidly that we don't want to go that route. It just doesn't make sense, right? So this full moon is an amazing opportunity to get very, in a way, not just responsible, but really use that taskmaster energy of Saturn and of Capricorn where the sun is because there's a trine to Saturn. We can literally hold ourselves to task for what we're doing and saying and thinking. And this is good news because once we do that, we are totally in control. We will not be controlled. We will not allow other external energy, whether it's a person or whether it's something we see online, whatever the case may be, we will not allow that to control us and how we think and how we behave and how we react. We will see through it because we have taken the bird's eye view of complete divine alignment. And when you go that distance of the Jupiter magnanimous approach where everything is given grace, nothing is lost, nothing is never going to be able to shift. When you stay in that place, the whole sense of your existence has shifted and you are now living the dream of paradise on earth, truly. So another aspect, speaking of paradise, The final one that I'll mention is Venus at 26 degrees Scorpio is trying to Neptune at 25 degrees in Pisces and Neptune rules Pisces. Remember Saturn is in Pisces and Saturn rules Capricorn and the sun in this full moon is in Capricorn. So there's a big connection. Well, Venus rules Taurus and Taurus is also a very big sign because Jupiter is in Taurus. Jupiter, the planet that is connecting so beautifully with the sun and moon. And also Uranus is in Taurus. Uranus is the ruler of the Aquarian age of Aquarius. So Venus creates this gorgeous trine to Neptune. And that is music to my ears, music to your ears, because these are the two planets of beauty and of beautiful music. And when they create a trine to each other, especially in the sign of Pisces and the sign of Scorpio, these are water signs, very heartfelt, deep signs very sensitive, very psychic, then it is to our benefit, to our advantage, and to our great healing to listen 
to beautiful sounds and to surround ourselves with beauty. So I want to leave you with that because when you partake in those qualities of life that are beautiful and loving and bring pleasure, you are putting your attention on everything that is good. It can be nature. It doesn't have to be music. It can be a beautiful painting or a beautiful note that you write, handwritten in cursive and send through the mail. It could be anything like that. It's really... The choices that we have for creating beauty and love are unlimited, just like Jupiter just like the year we're about to enter, eight universal year in 2024, we will know that it is unlimited and our energy is unlimited as well. And our capacity to create beauty and love is unlimited. And cancer stands for love. And this is after all the cancer full moon. Now for more on this incredible time we live in and the shift that is taking place, I have a wonderful free masterclass for you at spiritualmasterclass.com and it'll help you take your power back. It'll help you see what it truly means to be on a spiritual path. So I hope you enjoy that free masterclass. Again, you can watch it at spiritualmasterclass.com. Have a beautiful week, a beautiful holiday week, and I will see you in next week's Star Codes podcast. Rama for us to go to our conference call. Mm. It's past time. <laughs> Can you give us the numbers? Uh, 720-716-7301 and the pin code is 353-863-POUND. Happy day before the Christmas Eve time and uh yeah, we are the prime movers. It's That's the word. So we're going to prime move ourselves to the conference call right now. Thank you, everyone. We'll see you there. And then at the top of this next hour, we'll be right back here at BBS Radio, Station 2 for Saturdays. And we've got wonderful things planned for us. More music tonight. More music tonight. Okay. Namaste, everyone. Thank you, Rama. What was that? Who was that? Uh, it was um, an ancient Nordic chant to call in Odin and the um, the gods and goddesses of the north. Very good. Yeah. That was good sound. Wow. Okay, so we're going to continue with Dr. Robert Gilbert on Rosicrucianism, spiritual warfare, and our global ascension. I mean, what a mouthful. 
Uh, and he can do it. Yeah. And his uh his his host is no slouch either, Dr. Uh, Miles Neal, yeah. I think. N E A L E. Here we go. To come let's continue. And so as we look at this evolution of these particular impulses, we really have to go back to ancient periods of time to understand what's happening in these spiritual conflicts. Now, as a another type of very large-scale context for what's happening, then one aspect of this is that there were certain spiritual beings that were understood in earlier times to have particular agendas or activities in the physical world that are still very active today because that's part of the way that our system is set up. So often it's described that what we have when we incarnate into the physical world in the ancient tradition was referred to as the black cube because our three-dimensional world that we live in, up and down, front and back, side to side, if we put a wall at the end of all three of those axes, axes, what we get is a cube. And so the black cube of space is shown in many old alchemical diagrams because that's what we're incarnating into. We're, we're literally incarnating into the black box of the three-dimensional world to go through a evolutionary process. Now, it's understood by the Rosicrucians that there's also planetary influences on the current evolution of the Earth as a planet. There were early, earlier planetary evolutions, and there'll be later planetary evolutions. But for the Earth evolution, the first half of it, they refer to as the Mars evolution. And that's evolution through conflict. And that is a way to evolve and to develop internal strength and to become more self-aware and self-assertive, which we do need. But the second half of Earth evolution, which they believe we're passing into now, is the Mercury period. That's the time of healing. We have a tremendous amount of healing we need to do now for all those old Mars war-oriented conflictual mindsets that keep causing endless rounds of horror after horror. We have to get over that. So there is an evolution through conflict, uh, but there's also the evolution through the healing process of Mercury. Now, what you find in the Rosicrucian tradition to explain this at its most core level there's a huge range of different spiritual beings out there. If we even try to map all the different types of plants and animals on the earth, it's a gigantic catalog of different beings. How much larger is the catalog of non-physical beings existing in the universe, not only at the physical, but all the higher plane levels? So to keep it really simple, the way that it's approached in the Rosicrucian tradition is, okay, so we have the original divine. Everything is one. Everything is a unity. And mm. there's no conflict there because we're all part of the one. It's interesting that in ancient Greece, their word for the Godhead was the one in part of their esoteric schools. But then we have to evolve through splitting from the one into two, just like a fertilized egg in a mother's womb to create a new being. The one splits off into two. Now with the two, we have attraction, we have repulsion, we have dynamic movement and activity and evolution, but it can also be conflictual. 
So with that original impulse that connects us to the divine, this is like the middle pillar on the tree of life in the Jewish Kabbalah. It is the the standing pillar that connects us at the microcosm to the macrocosmic sources where everything is one. And at that center, that balance point, everything is properly aligned and balanced. But in the process of a spiritual being becoming self-aware and evolving to become an independent actor in the universe, which is what happens to all these ranks of spiritual beings, including ourselves, going through the earthly experience, is that we have the particular challenge that we have to have the knowledge of the tree of good and evil as described in the Jewish Kabbalistic tradition. So there is what is described in the Tibetan tradition as the middle path, the middle way. That's what's right. That's what's good. That's what's balanced. But even the name middle way, it means that we could go off in one direction and that direction could be a type of spiritual development that is illusory. That's based on narcissism. That's based on our own projections. That's based on fantasy rather than reality. So there is the aspect of spirituality that could be not grounded and just self-aggrandizing and illusory in its development. But the other side is materialism. We can become completely materialistic to where we believe that nothing spiritual even exists, that everything that we think is spiritual, like human consciousness, is nothing but an epiphenomenon of some physical source like chemicals that evolve over time randomly or something like that. So we have the the Scylla and Charybdis, the rock and the whirlpool that we have to deal with. So there are certain spiritual beings that at a point in their evolution wanted to do their own thing. And they split off, became highly spiritual, highly spiritualized, and it became sources of great light. Because light and consciousness is the exact same thing. When you experience consciousness externally, it appears as light. That's why you see light around the heads of the initiates in every tradition. When you experience light internally, you experience it as consciousness. It's the exact same thing. So these beings became a source of light because they expanded their consciousness to high level. They were very spiritual beings. But it became narcissistic. It became somewhat illusory. It kind of ran off the rails. And so that's why these beings were known in the Western tradition as the Luciferic beings because Lucifer Mm. means light bearer. These beings Mm. appear as great beings of light. That's why the simplistic polarity dichotomy you have in some spiritual teachings today about here's good and here's evil, it doesn't work that way. What's good is Mm. always in the middle. It's always the middle path. What is dysfunctional, we could call the unskillful action that the Buddhists describe, that can go off to two opposite directions a type of unbalanced spirituality where you don't make proper use and appreciation for the material plane and physical material incarnation for how important that is in the whole process. Yes, we are spiritual beings, but there's a reason why we're put here. It's not just an illusion that we bounce out of and pretend it never happened. So that's that's like an escapist, escapist. Exactly. A spirituality that is sort of transcended that, feels that the world itself is an illusion and therefore becomes detached or aloof. Absolutely. And that then leads to a type of illusory and ascension that you also find in some modern teachings. 
It's based on an emotional desire to not suffer further. It's not a mm-hmm. true ascension where you've worked through everything and there's no further resistance internally. So on the one side, you have the Luciferic beings, which chose the spiritual path, very independent, kind of an adolescent rebellion type of thing. And then on the other side, you had the beings that love matter. And they, in fact, are involved in taking the sacred geometry patterns from the Godhead and from higher spiritual beings and literally crystallizing it, building it to create a physical plane. These beings weren't even recognized or described until the Zoroastrian tradition many thousands of years ago. And in the old Zoroastrian tradition, they were referred to as Engramenu or Araman. And so the Aramonic beings are the beings that are also later for the Gnostics called the Demiurge, the dark lord mm-hmm. of this world. And in the Egyptian tradition, were referred to as Set. And then when the Hebrews left Egypt, and in the form of the seed syllables being transformed into another language, became Ha-Setan, or yeah, Satan, Satan, the adversary. And so these are very different beings. Today, people often, even in Christianity, they've completely mixed up they've, an, an exoteric. They've completed Lucifer with Satan. When it doesn't even make any sense. How does this dark, sclerotic being of Araman in the cave relate to a great cosmic being of pure light? It, it's not even coherent. But it's, it's led to a tremendous problem, which is that they think it's a very simple thing to, like, this is evil and this is good. So whatever I think is the thing... Whatever is opposite to it is bad. But that doesn't make any sense. If if uh, it's bad to be freezing cold, it doesn't help to be burning hot. You have to have the middle way. If you say that, you know, this gender is good, women are good, men are good, then, well, the opposite gender is bad. All of these, all these nonsense ideas come in. Because we've lost the idea of two opposite polarities and the balance in the center. So the being that holds the balance in the center becomes the key being of different traditions. And so for the Western Christian tradition, it's the Christos. That is the being of the middle pillar. And in the Christian tradition, another of the esoteric names for Archangel Mikael is that he is the countenance of Christ. That he is a being that acts in the service of Christ as holding the middle pillar and helping human beings navigate between these two opposite types of spiritual beings. The one saying, just go party, do anything you want. Don't worry about your physical incarnation. If that goes straight to hell, who cares? It's all an illusion. And then the other ones that say nothing spiritual exists. Get what you can. It's fine to abuse other people to do it because only this material existence is true. But that middle pillar is the the only one on the tree of life in the Jewish Kabbalah, if you see the actual pattern of it, is the only one that goes all the way up to heaven and all the way down to earth. The others are partial as the two side pillars. Yeah, in the Tibetan tradition, they describe it as the non-dual union of wisdom and compassion. So the wisdom side is the deep understanding and the fundamental openness of reality. That's the illumination part. But it, if you don't, if you don't open your heart, then you can, you can fall into the wrong understanding of emptiness. Emptiness is described as something that should take you right back into the world. And that for, therefore you need to have a lot of resilience and tough compassion, let's say. On the other hand, if you have the compassion part that keeps you bound to the suffering of individuals, you can have 
sort of burnout or hopelessness because suffering feels endless. So the two really have to come together. That's that's sort of what I'm feeling into what you're talking about with these Luciferian and satanic forces. There's something vital from both of them. One is being truly in the world and the other is having that illumination. But without the other counterpart, it falls into an extreme. Yes, absolutely. It becomes very unbalanced. So it's always a question of connecting to the middle pillar to unite the two together back into the one. I'd like to make a very quick comment based on what you were talking about with the the Tibetan Buddhist understanding of how important the heart forces are and the development of compassion. First thing I want to say is that one way to understand what a spiritual tradition is, and I'm taking this from a, a teacher of mine who founded the Clear Vision School of Australia, a French medical doctor named Samuel Sagan, who passed away a few years ago. And he said, a spiritual tradition is a particular group of non-physical spiritual beings and human initiates that are bringing a particular spiritual teaching to manifest on the earth and also with a particular method of structuring the subtle bodies of their initiates so that they can grow in a particular way and take certain actions. So the Buddhist tradition and the Christian tradition are two separate traditions today at this level. But if you go up, not many levels at all, one or two levels, you'll find that the Christian and Buddhist traditions overlap tremendously. They almost become one tradition. That's something I could give a lot of examples on, but I'll just mention it in passing right now. I love this direction, Robert. I mean, this is this is the heart of where I feel my my work is. is I feel like energetically where we are in the cosmos and its trajectory is asking us to become energetically informed. And that's why the tantras, from the Buddhist point of view, that's why the Dalai Lama is releasing them. It doesn't mean that he releases them and makes them available that everybody gets it. They still (laughs) require an incredible amount of commitment and diligence and discipline in order to really, in order to really graft to them. But just to say that this construction of this cosmology in which there are actual exterior beings in, in the Buddhist tradition, I mean, Secular Buddhists, you know, the mindfulness revolution, for example, they, they don't really want to talk about this. But from the Tibetan tradition, all of the great sages have been in direct dialogue with angels. I mean, you can't get around it. Nagarjuna, the, the great, the great Atisha, they were in dialogue with Lama, with, with the Aryatara, with, with Prajnaparamita. They're in consort with angels of another dimension and they're receiving transmissions and then their, their contribution is distilling and distributing those teachings to a wider audience. They become me- missionaries or mediaries. But the point is that the tantric technology is really designed for a human being to become aware of their energetic body so that they can operate in multiple dimensions simultaneously. They don't have to just disappear into the ether. Actually, this body is is a well-crafted mechanism, very well suited for this environment if it's if it's understood for what it really is, uh, fine-tuned and crafted. And so all of this is coming together now. I'm really excited. I, I, I want to turn it back over to you. Tell, to take us deeper into, into the angels, into the work that you're doing with the energetic body and the sacred geometry and the sacred biology. 
uh, because it's it, if, if I'm not mistaken, you know, your your mission is is really to create um, what would be called in antiquity the mystery schools to revive them in a way as a preparatory training ground for people who are serious about really understanding who they are and maximizing this life opportunity to be an agent of change and not just one that's falling into either of these binaries, but one that's really balanced on a soul level and manifesting in the world at the same time. So I, I feel there's a lot of synchronicity with what we're doing right now, and I'm mm-hmm. excited to let just let you take over again. Okay, great. Thank you. So when I created the Beska Institute, it was definitely from an inspiration of what you're talking about. It, I think we go through a process as we really wake up of based on comparative advantage of the different things I could do to be of service to the world and to others, what is the most pressing need that I have the best comparative advantage to work in? So I could have done all kinds of things, but it just became apparent that working to create a universal spiritual science to clarify and simplify very deep and profound teachings from multiple directions and unify them together and make those available to people in a way that is completely non-dogmatic and does, is not a question of believing anything up front or subscribing to, to any dogma or to having to join any organization or give away any part of your freedom that just needed to exist simply to save people time to be able to not have to do what I've done in spending decades with tremendous amounts of time going into putting all these pieces together. But like, mm. here's the, the simple upshot of all of these different things so that you can save those decades because life is a limited time opportunity. It's going to be over before you know it. And you need to make progress on remembering who you are. What does smart chiropractors and doctors do when they get joint pain? See, the second us chiropractors feel joint pain coming on, whether it's in our knees, lower back, wrists, you name it, we don't lay on a buddy's table and get realigned. Nor- Remembering why you're here and what you chose to do in this incarnation. It's very common if you observe people's souls and spirits after they, they die and they transition and they look back on the world, they got so lost in the difficulties and trials of human life that when they're on the other side, without the weight of the physical body and of physical demands weighing them down, they're like, no, 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 I was I was supposed to do this thing and I didn't do it. That becomes a terrible bardo experience for them on the other side of like, I had all that time and I didn't use the time correctly to do this. So that's my goal in working with the Best Institute to the limits of my ability, which is very limited, to put this together and to get it out to people. That's the purpose of it. Now, I want to make a specific observation later what you talked about with the importance of, you know, the high tantras and things within the Tibetan tradition and about how significant that is with the heart. In the Rosicrucian tradition, to make this accessible to people, there is a description And I go into detail on this in an online class I have called Essential Teachings and Practices of Spiritual Science. I talk about this in much more detail, and I give all the practices. But in the Rosicrucian tradition, they talk about six essential exercises. Now, to understand why there's six essential exercises, there's the understanding that the heart chakra, as shown in the Himalayan tradition, is a 12-petal lotus. 
and it's believed in the Rosicrucian tradition that six of the lotus petals have been developed in earlier stages of human evolution, and we need to fully develop the other six lotus petals. Each lotus petal is developed through a specific type of esoteric practice. And if we can develop those other six lotus petals through the six essential exercises, then the entire heart chakra becomes fully activated, starts to spin more effectively as a chakra. And at that point, it becomes the organizing center for all of the energy centers and movements of energy that create the subtle body structure in every human being. Until the heart is fully activated, there is no organizing center for the human body of energy and consciousness. And that's, I think, a very profound understanding for the Rosicrucian tradition. If you want an organizing center, you got to develop the heart. So the six essential exercises, to make it super simple, because that could be several-hour discussion in itself, and I go into great detail in the online course, they are to observe and then direct everything in our thinking. This is directly connected to mindfulness in the Buddhist tradition. To observe and then direct in a skillful way everything in our feeling forces. And then to observe and direct everything in our will forces, all of our willpower, all of the actions we take in the world. It's very similar to the Tibetan thought, speech, and action. But this is thinking, feeling, and willing in the Rosicrucian tradition. And then you have to develop tremendous amounts of positivity to develop the fourth lotus petal. That positivity is essential. They always tell this uh, story in the Rosicrucian tradition about a parable of the Christ. Christ is walking down the road with his disciples. They pass a dead dog. The dog is is dead. It stinks. It's rotting. It's uh, very ugly to look at. There are maggots crawling in the corpse. And all of the disciples turn away, except Christ, who looks at the animal as they walk past, and then he turns to the disciples and smiles and says, what beautiful teeth that animal had. And so it's an illustration of this thing. We have to have this tremendous positivity for whatever challenges life brings to us. That's one of the things that really marks a state of spiritual development. Now, the, the fifth one comes from not getting sold on our own current state of development and always realizing we have further to go and having an openness to new information and tremendous equanimity toward that new information, to see things from radically different perspectives than we saw it before, and to be open to new ways of seeing and understanding. Because it tends to be as we get older, we get very crusty, and we like to see things the way that we see it. got to stay fresh. you got to stay open to it. That's one of the things that's happening now with the psychedelic revolution. People start to lock down the bolts in their heads as they get older, and then it gets blown open by the psychotropics. And then all of these need to be brought together into a unified system. The observation and the direction of our thinking, of our feeling, of our willing, of our positivity, of our openness and equanimity. And that is what develops the heart chakra to become the organizing center for the entire body of energy. And so we can start to see these particular spiritual practices as being something that has a direct reflection in our body of energy because it is the subtle body structure that is our pearl of great price. We don't take the physical body with us when we die. We can't take our physical things that we've built up until now, 
The only thing you, you take with you is the structure of your subtle bodies. That is the key thing. And if you follow the practices of a certain spiritual tradition, they are specialized to create certain structures in your subtle body so that you can do the activities that a particular tradition is here for to do that thing. So like, for example, one of the things that the European Rosicrucian tradition specializes for and helps to then provide for the entire planet is to illuminate thinking at a higher level, to make a type of scientific thinking become clairvoyant, to become the deep thinking, which is highly energetically taxing, to create a new spiritual science. That's one of the things that gets structured through the Rosicrucian tradition. If you train in some other tradition, they may be structuring your subtle body for some other very important task in the greater scheme of things. But this is one of those million-dollar concepts that's been almost lost today. What we're doing, every time that we use our mind, every time we use our feelings, every time we take an action, it's a cause set in motion. Not only does it generate karma, it also has the effect that it creates a structure in the subtle body. It will activate certain energy centers in your body, but may sedate other ones. It will create links between certain energy centers in the body. That starts to create sacred geometric patterns in and around the human energy body. And so in every spiritual tradition, at the higher levels, the great initiates understand that you can understand who someone is by examining their subtle body structure. It is the formula of who that person is as a unique spiritual being and how far they've evolved and what they're still working on at this time. So I find that people just become aware of this concept just having the concept helps. One thing I think is of tremendous value for everybody to realize is that spiritual beings are working with us at all times to yeah. give us inspirations, ideas. For people that haven't developed their consciousness enough to get that idea directly, it'll go into your will forces. For you to take some action, to go to this place, to get this book, to talk to this person, something where they're trying to get you closer to, to realizing it. There's one simple hearing hack anyone can use to improve their hearing almost overnight. Did you know that hearing impairments have nothing to do with your ears? The ears are nothing more than a microphone to the part of the brain responsible for your hearing. Here's the problem. No matter what type of hearing aid you use or what treatment. But it's all about being able to get that knowledge from these higher beings. And that's why in the Nepalese illustrations, they show the energy field above the human head. This is deeply tied into both the Tibetan and Indian traditions, what you find in Nepal, that you'll see the line of energy above the head, and they'll show specific energy centers as they go above and the geometric structure of those energy centers. Because this is what allows you to get what, again, taking a great term from Dr. Samuel Sagan of the Clear Vision School, he would call packed thought forms. Higher spiritual beings communicate with us through packed thought forms, a packet of information, which may have mm. tones, it may have visuals, it may have all types of deep content. It's like a transmission in the Indian yes. tradition that you get in a second. And if you try to explain it to somebody else, it could take you hours trying to unpack that transmission into one word after another. A download. But, but the download is instantaneous. So just having these concepts, tying that back in, just having these concepts is something that allows you to then get more specific information in the downloads from these beings. So, for example, in the Western tradition, 
if you don't know the difference between a physical body, an etheric life body, an astral body, and other higher bodies, there's not much that they can teach you about the subtle bodies. That's why in the Indian tradition, they have the knowledge of all the koshas, so that you know the different subtle bodies, so when you connect to these higher beings, they can give you specific information you need at that time. Same thing in the Tibetan tradition. Very specific terminology and concepts related to aspects of the subtle bodies. Because if we don't have that in our consciousness field, then there's nowhere for the more advanced knowledge from these beings to land. They can only give us general information. Just like a person, if they're going to get, they can't get knowledge of calculus if they can't do simple arithmetic. So that's why getting certain spiritual concepts in our minds is not purely a mind game. It is actually setting a foundation to get more advanced information from these beings. Yeah, preparation. Uh, I, I, uh, as I'm listening to you, I'm thinking, oh, we're, we're going to run out of time soon, and I'm, <laughs> I'm such enjoying it because you, you've opened up another door, and with such synchronicity between traditions. I mean, when you were describing the levels, you're sort of you were sort of motioning that at a higher levels, the differences between these traditions start to break down a little bit. Did I get that correct? I mean. Yes, particularly certain traditions, they're very tightly connected. Mm -hmm. You know, like, we don't know much about the Greek mysteries other than there may have been usage of psychedelics. Some argue that the the gods in the Greek pantheon were known to be archetypal and projections of the mind. I'm not so sure that that's true. Uh, But I'm hearing from you that the Rosicrucian tradition comes out of Egyptian and Greek lineage, let's say. And as I've been thinking about my own work, bridging East and West too, I I wonder sometimes where the traditions were intersecting. Sometimes I think somewhere in the Northeast India, Greeks and Indians were in the sub, you know, the subcontinent were in dialogue and that there's so much commonality between potential psychedelic usage and subtle body tantric work that even the words ambrosia and amrita for example are really symbols of something very similar that there there is an attempt in the human endeavor to realize oneself as being a soul or angel like that's that's common whether it's Taoist alchemy, tantric, Himalayan tantras, whatever they were doing in, in Greece, the alchemical traditions of the Renaissance. Now you're introducing me to the Rosicrucians. I, I think there's so much synergy here, and it brings me full circle to the conversation starter with, with the big picture of this being a time where we put aside a lot of the differences and minutia. I mean, I'm not a proponent of the new age. I think that that a lot of people are getting lost by just dumping things lightweight into their shopping cart and uh, sort of everything is all, it's all good. And, mm-hmm. you know, everything is really the same. I mean, you've invested an enormous amount of energy and life, precious life work into really going into deep, deep places and seeing since synchronetic, syncretic, uh, overlaps. Um, but I, I just, I'm, I'm excited by it because from the big picture, people who are listening right now, 
you know, I feel need an orientation, you know, that, that they're not here to just ride the corporate ladder and take care of their families, although that is important, of course. But this idea that we are growing to the limits of our materialistic paradigm mm-hmm. and crossing a threshold to realize or reclaim things from our Eastern and Western traditions that were really vital to us. It's almost like coming full circle. So I just want to, I just want to offer back, you know, if there's a, a way to close up the loop, because I think we could talk endlessly about it. I'm really excited. I feel grateful to have met you. I feel particularly grateful for all the um, work that you've done to cobble this together into something coherent. I really respect the fact that it's open and non-institutionalized. I think that is a great service, honestly, because I think if you can preserve the spirit of the tradition without the dogma, you've made your life work meaningful. I mean, I really do. I think you've found that middle pillar by saying this is important to be a spiritual, to remember your spiritual being, but to remember the limits of being a card tearing spiritual being and exclusory. But I just, you know, I want to convey my appreciation. And if there are, ways that you like to a message that you want to give a way that you want to close this close the discussion or close the loop uh please feel free you know to to end with a, a an inspiring message for people or to to move it back into a per, one person that there's people out there that you know need that last little bit of message i've just turned it over to you to, to sort of convey what it is from your heart okay thank you well the the thing that really I think is in my heart all the time and doing this work. And what I like to convey to people is once again, we have a very limited time here in this physical incarnation. It's easy to get caught up in all the challenges that we have here. It's very easy to get caught up in distractions to deal with our particular types of suffering to, to end up frittering away the time. But the time here is very precious And we need to make a major part of our incarnation in the beginning was the memory. So every person needs to be honest with themselves. How far have I gone on this path of remembering who am I? Why am I here? And what did I choose to do in this incarnation? Because I guarantee you, when you pass through the gate of death and on the other side, you remember all those things that you didn't spend enough time working to remember in your earthly incarnation. There is a suffering that is associated with it. There's not only the suffering that we have because we did not accomplish what we came here to do because we got too lost. There is all of the suffering of the other people we were supposed to help that we didn't help, that we didn't do the work we came here to do. Mm. Then it becomes an avalanche of all the unfulfilled karmic responsibilities that people haven't pulled off. So I don't want to say this to people as just like giving them a weight, like, oh, now I got a karmic responsibility I have to do. This is actually something to give you a going toward value will be the most pleasurable thing of your life. The most important and pleasurable thing of my entire life, as far as being a spiritual being in the physical world and outside of some of my relationships with certain people that brought me wonderful gifts, was being able to remember enough of who I am and why I'm here to be able to, in whatever imperfect way, work toward that goal. It's something that, it's it's like you were asleep your whole life, and then you wake up and remember who you are and why you're here. It adds an energy and a purpose 
and a light to everything. And when you then begin to open up the organs of spiritual perception to perceive that we are surrounded by a non-physical world of spiritual planes, spiritual beings, it's not a metaphor, it's real, that that's something that takes away one of the great background fears in human beings today, the fear of annihilation, the fear of being extinguished, the fear that at death there's nothing else that our materialistic world will tell you. That's not the case. When you remember who you are, then what comes after that is remembering the process of incarnations before that and the process of incarnations to come. And it opens up so much love and appreciation for the people around you in this lifetime who you will often begin to remember were with you in previous lifetimes and some of your karma and struggles with them. But you become so grateful for how so many people and so many non-physical beings have worked so hard to give you this chance to be here now and to do this work and to become aware of, again, what is it that is your cutting edge point right now? What do you need to work on in yourself to get to these levels? Again, I highly recommend the six essential exercises in the Rosicrucian tradition. You can find analogs to that in the Buddhist tradition and many other traditions. So go where you want to go for that. But you need to find a pathway to work on your own core development, but also remember at the same time what's said in the Rosicrucian tradition, that for every step that you take forward in your own personal development and developing your own spiritual powers or siddhas, you need to take three steps forward in developing your core, your core heart energy, yes. your orientation to the spiritual world, and of acts of service to other people. Because in the Rosicrucian tradition, one of the sayings is that everything that you gain on the path is meant to be put at the service of other people. You can have fun, you can have your life, you can do whatever you want to do, but that's the point of it. If you're not putting it to the service of other people, you're separating yourself from the greatest experience in all spiritual life, which is union with other people, going back to the one, Yes. We can even perceive when we perceive non-physical beings that you may perceive a being that appears to be one great being, but then other smaller beings start separating out of that totality. And you realize that these beings can combine together. Samuel Sagan at the Clear Vision School had a saying that he called combinescence, that beings can, in a non-physical world, without a physical body, you can literally unite and merge with other beings. It's an incredible experience. What we all want in some type of tantric sexual union is to become one so you can't feel where you end and the other person begins because it takes you back to the divine. You unify back to the one. So if we're not providing service to other people, it's separating us from being able to unify back to the one. Because I'll leave you with this. In the Rosicrucian tradition, all of us in humanity have a particular name as a rank of spiritual beings. And we're called spirits of love and freedom. And all the challenges of our being here is for a very beneficial purpose. Even those detrimental beings I spoke about before, they need to be here to give us something to push against, to develop strength. And so we're called spirits of love and freedom because we have to simultaneously hold the twin values with the middle path of being able to be completely free and independent 
and choose our own path in life and do things that other people may not believe in or understand through our own inner strength. We have to have that freedom, but it has to go hand in hand with love, which is the ability to unify and become one with other beings, which brings us back to the divine. And that's what the path is all about. It's a constant dynamic activity. We keep going through the circle and going up in an upward spiral of our knowledge and evolution. And this is an amazing time to be alive. There's more information available now than any time in recorded history. Take advantage of it and turn your life into something that's a, a spiritual delight because that's the opportunity we're given right now. Dr. Robert, thank you so much. What an amazing ride. I, I look forward to having further conversations with you. It ends on a, you know, a great note of inspiration. The union of uh, freedom and love is it's it's how my recent pilgrimage to uh, Java with a Tibetan master just last month ended. The, um, the pilgrimage theme came up synchronistically around the what's called the union of Shiva and Buddha, which was. In Indonesia, centuries ago, there was a syncretic tradition of Tantra that was both uniting Shiva and Buddhism, which got lost but is only now being revived. And when I talked to the masters of the land about it, they were saying that Shiva represents the the uh, expansion of consciousness, freedom, and Buddha represents the love connection to the world. And so there you have the middle pillar beautifully uh, wrapping up your conversation on the Luciferian and satanic forces and finding the middle middle pillar. So I I really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you so much again for all your contribution and all you're doing to revive the mystery schools. And uh, until the next time, uh, all best wishes to you and all with all your work. Wonderful. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed talking with you and I'd love to come back for us to take this further. And you really dropped a bombshell at the end there about the union of the Shiva and Buddha impulses, because one of the most advanced spiritual traditions on the planet is Kashmiri Shaivism. And so most people in the West don't know about it, so I'd love to talk further with you. Thank you so much for having me. Great. That'll that'll leave us for something to digest and process (laughs) next time. Till soon. Thank you for listening to the Wisdom Keeper podcast. If you've enjoyed this presentation of Sacred Knowledge, kindly like, subscribe, review, and share our podcast and video series on YouTube with your network so that more people can benefit from these teachings and together we can create a brighter future. If you're interested in my online courses, our community membership, and pilgrimages I lead, consider visiting the Contemplative Studies Program at gradualpath.com until we gather again all best wishes wonder everybody wow are we getting a download here all right this will also uh, it will it will pique your curiosity here our favorite friends, William Henry, Freddie Silva, <coughs> Eric Von Dannigan, Rita Louise, Ben Van Kirk, Kirkwick, Hugh Newman, Andrew Collins, Randall Carlson, Brian Forrester, Max LaCroix.
In the remote rainforest of the Amazon, is there evidence that connects the lost empires of Mu and Atlantis? From Ecuador, across Bolivia, and into Peru, the Incan Trail connects pre-Diluvian ceremonial sites on a path of misunderstood monuments, <coughs> misunderstood monuments through mountains and valleys. These mysterious relics and subterranean secrets inspired legendary expeditions by the likes of Neil Armstrong, among others. What treasures were found inside the Taos Caves, or the Taos Caves, deep in the jungle? What wisdom can alternative researchers learn from the tribal custodians of this ancient land? And this is 30 minutes, so did you find it, Rama? Oh. Okay. <laughs> We're going to spend the last hour and a half tonight uh, with the Mormon Tabernacle Choir. Here we go. Okay, Rama's ready. So here we go. Let's do this first. Here we go. Amazon rainforest. Legends of lost treasures echo through the dense jungles. Misunderstood monuments mark a path along the Andean mountains where the ancient Inca Empire presided. But who inhabited these lands before the fires and floods of the younger Dryas? destroyed the Atlantean and Mu empires. Mysterious relics and subterranean secrets have inspired famous expeditions. But what else lies in the jungle of this ancient land? Ecuador straddles part of the Andes. It's actually in the Amazon basin. It's on the equator, and that's what the word Ecuador means is equator. It's almost perfectly situated right in between where we think Atlantis was located and where we think Mu was located. One of the most amazing feats of advanced engineering that we find in South America is the Inca Trail. The Inca Trail connected all of their major sites together, thus identifying that they were all part of the same culture at one point in time. 
it's really important to remember that, you know, it's all part of a, a similar region along the, the western side of the, the South American continent. And I think when you look at the evidence for megalithic construction in that area, and I think certainly um, there's evidence for megalithic sites stretching far back in time to, to pre-Diluvian times, you can go all the way south down into Bolivia with sites like Tiwanaku and Pumapunku up around the Lake Titicaca region, right through the sacred valley of Peru with sites like Ayante Tambo, Machu Picchu, Cusco itself. We also have ancient sites that stretch back far beyond any of those cultures in places like Chavantihuanta, which is in the north of Peru. I think you pretty much have to consider places like Ecuador all part of the same region because we certainly see a similar technique, a similar style of megalithic buildings in sites across what today is, is, is three separate countries. You know, Ecuador today, we call it Ecuador and we call the neighbor land we call Peru. It's all linked. Forget the, forget the, 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 the today's, uh, you know, national frontier. It was all one thing. The highland of today's Peru was the place where the gods were, was the place where they had their base camp, was the place where they teach the humans. Also, we've got to remember, this is towards the coast of the Pacific as well. And so we have much more possibilities going on here to make it more ancient than people realize. It could have been one of the outposts of the whole Mu era. You know, we've got to consider things like this. Throughout history, alternative researchers have speculated that the Inca Empire built their temples on ceremonial sites they discovered from a much older culture. Their most famous temple complex, Machu Picchu in Peru, contains the Temple of the Sun that is believed to be an ancient ceremonial site aligned with the Pleiades star cluster. The lesser-known Inca site, located in northern Ecuador, is known as Inca Pirca. This Temple of the Sun was also built upon foundation stones that are thought to have been used for ancient solstice ceremonies. Could this mysterious monument be another clue to the presence of an interconnected pre-Diluvian civilization throughout South America long before the Inca? As the sites that comprise the Inca Trail help alternative researchers understand the ancient sky, what happened when the earlier inhabitants of this region could no longer commune with the stars. It certainly seems evident that there, there was a concerted effort to create underground structures and to potentially move large populations of people into what are effectively underground cities that we can find all around the world. Derinkuyu in the Cappadocia region of Turkey is a great example. That's a massive underground installation that could have housed tens of thousands of people. It's a little known fact, but there are miles and miles of tunnels and chambers beneath places like Saqqara, Egypt, also at Giza. I've had the chance to explore some of these myself, and I can tell you that there is just extensive underground work that also happened in places like Egypt. One thing we know for sure about South America is that it was intensely affected by the Younger Dryas. In some places, almost 80% of megafauna died off in South America. There was tremendous climate change that occurred 
during the Younger Dryas. So at some point, it definitely seems like there was a, a real effort to move underground, potentially to protect themselves from what was happening on the surface or protect themselves from the sun. We don't really know. But at some point, there was a, a real effort to, to go underground and to get away from whatever was happening uh, on the surface of the planet. And these are the stories that we hear all over the world, from Mesoamerica to Egypt to Plato and Atlantis to Mew in the Pacific, that our ancestors at some point went underground during a period of darkness. And when that darkness went away, we came out and we created the world around us today. If we were faced with a similar event today, something on the scale of the Younger Dryas. What would we do if we saw, yes, there is a major swarm of stuff breaking up on an orbital pathway that intersects the, that of the Earth? And sooner or later, within the next, say, few decades to a 100 years, Earth is going to encounter the byproducts of this disintegrating object, maybe multiple times. Now, what would we do as a civilization to respond to that? And I think that's how we have to think about previous events. What would we do? Throughout North and Mesoamerica, there are subterranean legends, such as the Hopi tradition of the ant people and Chickamostoc, the seven caves that helped the ancient Mesoamerican ancestors survive destructive cataclysms. But what lies underneath the jungles of the Amazon may hold the evidence that links all pre-Diluvian civilizations from around the planet to inner Ecuador. The mystery begins in the town of Cuenca, where a priest named Father Crespi held a collection of artifacts that ignited alternative researchers and their interest in this mysterious region of South America. Father Carlos Crespi was an Italian monk. Before he became a priest, he had trained in anthropology in Milan. Then in 1923, he sent to Ecuador as a Celestian monk. These are monks, Christian monks that specialize in poverty-stricken children, tried to educate them, lift them up. He arrives in Ecuador and he suddenly finds he has a real affinity and affection for the people. He loves them and, and, and they love him because of his devotion, especially to the kids. The locals start bringing him various gifts and artifacts, strange kind of gold artifacts, tablets, different things like this that he starts collecting. And he starts to realize that there's some real enigmas attached to this collection of artifacts. And some of them are wonderful. They are miniature carved versions of uh, local idols. They are, there's pottery, there's human heads, there's shrunken heads. And then, Incredibly, there are miniature versions of a lot of the statues that you find in Babylon. Now, what is that doing on the opposite side of the world, I wonder? That's one of the biggest mysteries we don't know. And they're beautiful, beautiful carvings. 
When you look at the photos of Father Crespi's collection, they look like they came from cultures such as the Sumerians, the Africans, the Asians, as well as Europeans. And some of the pieces are so finely done, they appear as if they came out of a museum somewhere around the world, except somehow ended up in this remote location in the Andes. Over the course of time, local people brought him artifacts from the jungle. The early ones looked physically very similar to artifacts found in ancient Samaria. But as time went on, the quality of the workmanship became more and more crude. And so what's likely is that the original artifacts were found, but then later the local people, in order to appease and please Father Crespi, began to manufacture artifacts. And being a very kind priest, he accepted all of the pieces that were brought to him, which wound up being several thousand. And this, of course, has caused a lot of confusion because when you look at the artifacts, you're not sure which ones are the, the original old ones, which ones were manufactured by the indigenous people, simply to say thank you to him for what he was doing, the mission that he had created. But of course, questions then arose. Well, where do these artifacts come from? And the location that kept coming up was the Cueva de los Teos, the cave of the oil bird. And this was a very remote location in the rainforests of Ecuador, which it was said contained incredible treasures of the past as well as a library recording evidence of some kind of lost civilization that had existed in South America in the distant past and may well have been linked with a island continent, perhaps even Mir. And so, of course, this is something that started to interest Europeans. Juan Moritz, a Hungarian explorer, started to see if he could get in with the local Schwa tribe that were the custodians of the Taos Cave. And in 1969, he was said to have gone down into the cave, descended down this huge, great vertical shaft to get there, hundreds and hundreds of feet, very, very dangerous. And that he then explored the caves and saw what he referred to as this metal library or this gold library which was these rows and rows of these tablets in this strange script where these tablets looked as if they were actually made of gold themselves, plus many, many other different artifacts that were down there. And, of course, it intrigued the world. Every explorer of this period wanted to be an Indiana Jones and go down there and try and find this metal library. I read a small article about Ecuadorian caves and they were artificial. There was a man mentioned with the name Juan Morris and I was fascinated. So I wrote to a telegrapho. I never received an answer. I simply jumped in the air, in the aircraft and fly to Ecuador. They were very friendly. They knew some of my books. And I said to them, hey, you published this and you're about subterranean caves in Ecuador. Is this all true? Can I met this man Juan Morris? We had the connection with Juan Morris. Now I learned 
He originally comes from Hungary and he speaks German. He brought me up first to Carlo Crespi. I visited Father Crespi several times. He had rooms, not small rooms, rooms and rooms full of figures out of stone, copper, silver and gold. And he showed me these rooms and Father Crespi over Eric, it's all oro, it's all gold. Today I know it was not pure gold, it was parts of gold in it. But And I asked him, where do these figures come from? He said, the natives gave it to me. So here we have this Italian monk with as many as 50,000 artifacts coming from this mysterious source, this Teos cave. And Eric von Daniken writes his book in 1973, The Gold of the Gods, And suddenly the story explodes all over the world. It's an enormously significant discovery. Inspired by the groundbreaking book, The Gold of the Gods, in 1976, Stan Hall, a Scottish engineer and conservationist, led a major scientific expedition deep into the Amazon jungle to map this mysterious cave system. The landmark expedition included a dozen institutions, joint special forces, and one of the most famous men on the planet. One person that took a great interest in the metal library of the Taos Caves was the astronaut Neil Armstrong. Presumably, he'd heard the stories and wanted to come on board and be a part of the expedition to go down into those caves, which he did just seven years after being the first person to step on the moon. And along with a team that was put together by Stan Hall, which included other engineers, included officials, included members of special services, both from Ecuador and from Britain and from other countries as well, creating this huge, great team of about 100 people, one of the biggest exploration teams that had ever been seen, descended down into the Taos Cave in August 1976, looking for these lost treasures. This is a major story in the 1970s. Neil Armstrong believes he can find the Taos Cave and reveal this lost civilization or this lost history to all of humanity. The journey to get to the Taos Cave is an entire expedition itself, let alone even getting down into the subterranean chambers. You have to first travel up deep, remote rivers in the Amazon jungle climb through tangled mountains to get to a cave entrance that's a 200-foot vertical drop into a subterranean cave system that supposedly goes miles and has never been fully excavated or understood. The Taos Caves in Ecuador are located in a very remote region. They're tough to get to, but they're absolutely gigantic when you get in there. Like this, These are huge open spaces, massive galleries where you could essentially they've been described as you could have whole buildings that have laid down on their side exist inside some of these caverns. It's kilometers and kilometers long. They do exist. I was at least in a small part of these tunnels. They are definitely cut out of the rock artificially. The walls are polished, smooth. 
span holes. Team survey, possibly about three miles of caves. And this is invaluable itself to actually create a map that's been of use to expeditions that have gone down since. Sadly, unfortunately, they weren't able to find the metal library. What they did find, however, was a quite remarkable human burial that dated back to about 1500 BC, surrounded by grave goods, but in such a position that the sun came down through the opening into the caves only at the time of the summer solstice and hit that actual spot where the burial had been found, telling us that whoever this was, was a very important person and that these caves therefore meant a lot to the indigenous Swa people, the tribal peoples that were the custodians to the caves. I was writing about these subterranean caves in one of my books and of course I was attacked. Some critics said this is all rubbish, this is all invention or I'm a liar, etc. And uh, later I read an article in a German magazine that Mr. Neil Armstrong, the first man on the moon in one of these subterranean caves in Ecuador, and he said, this is absolutely nothing. There's nothing artificial. Quasi Eric von Däniken is a liar. And I said, this is impossible. I was there. I made my photos. Where was Neil Armstrong? So I wrote him a nice letter. Dear Professor Armstrong, his professor at the university, or he was... University of Cincinnati and he knew me because of my books that's why he answered and I received a wonderful letter from him I have it still in my archive where he told me I'm originally from Scotland and with this uh, group of Scottish cave explorers we went to Ecuador our exploring had nothing to do with your tunnels he wrote me he has been misquoted completely by the press That's sometimes the story you suffer when somebody just makes out a sensation in the press and tells story like Neil Armstrong disproved Eric von Däniken while Neil Armstrong said, I'm sorry, I was never at that place. Stan Hall spent years studying the Tiles Caves and at the end of his life, he actually figured out that he was looking at the wrong location the indigenous people state that Neil Armstrong and those groups that have explored the caves never made it to the true entrance and that the subterranean cave is so vast that the true entrance where the actual treasure from these ancient cultures around the world is still being hidden today by those indigenous cultures. The people of that Amazon region are still protecting the true interest of that cave and the treasures and the secrets within that cave today. So Those treasures, that gold library, that metallic library, that evidence of the lost civilization is still there waiting to be found to this day. And we need to get back there. We need to continue to make this search because this could reveal evidence of the lost continent of Mew, the lost continent of Atlantis and exactly what was going on in our world before we lost our memory at the time of the Younger Dryas. After Father Crespi's death, it is said that these treasures were stolen. However, the Central Bank of Ecuador claims to have all of Father Crespi's pieces. 
What's interesting about the Father Crespi collection is the story around what potentially happened to it after Father Crespi passed away. He had collected a huge amount of artifacts after his time. This collection doesn't seem to include some of the more interesting artifacts, let's say, that have shown up in photographs that were taken when people visited his collection while he was alive. The unfortunate thing is that upon the death of Father Crespi, his entire collection was divided up. A lot of it was stolen by different people. The most important artifacts are now located in one or two of the largest banks in Ecuador. I had the opportunity to go to Cuenca in 2015. We managed to get access to two or three different places that had some hidden in their basements. One of them was the central bank of Cuenca. Another one was in the basement of the library where they have hundreds of artifacts that were collected and given to Father Crespi going over the last few decades. These actually include elongated skulls, giant stone pots and everything else you can think of. We couldn't believe our eyes that all these stories that have been written about saying all these libraries have been lost, we actually saw them for ourselves. It was incredibly hard to determine if these were ancient or these were modern fakes, but the stories and the myths that I know people like Eric Von Daniken and others have looked into over the years suggest there was something much more profound going on here. And so people will think they're all lost, but they're not. You can actually go there and you can, if you make the right inquiries, you can see them for yourself. Does this collection of relics preserved by Father Crespi point to an even larger ancient library still within this subterranean wonder? And is this the legendary place where survivors from Mu and Atlantis congregated to endure one of the most anomalous and turbulent times in geological history? What other evidence will be discovered beneath the jungles of Ecuador to cement this majestic land permanently into the historical record as one of the legendary locations of inner earth that allowed our ancient ancestors to keep the sacred knowledge alive to help humanity rebuild and thrive after the Younger Dryas? As mainstream searches for answers to our most puzzling questions, what other evidence will be uncovered that can unite all ancient cultures and drastically alter the mainstream timeline for the rise of human civilizations? Looking into the lore of the region, whether or not it's the indigenous people of the Amazon or the ancient Peruvian people of that region, what we find is that the area of Ecuador where Inca Pyrrhic was built, as well as the location of Tayo's cave, was a major meeting ground for civilizations around the world as a place to bring ancient artifacts, ancient texts, and knowledge to one single place that could be preserved so that it can never be lost again. The ancient Incan, as well as the ancient Atlanteans, the ancient Mu people, and all of these civilizations that existed long before the Younger Dryas, they had known that the Taos Cave was one of the most extensive subterranean caves in the world. And because of its high elevation in the Andes Mountains, it would be protected from great catastrophes like floods. 
This led the ancient people to take artifacts and ancient writings and bring them to this cave, as well as a place to reside and survive these catastrophes. One of my thoughts about this region altogether and the, the connections that comes from megalithic building is that I think there was a, a builder culture. So whether this is Mu or Atlantis or something else, the, the people that built these megalithic installations all around the world were connected. They may not have been tightly coupled and connected. It might have been outposts of a similar civilization, almost like cousins, because there are little differences in style from place to place. So I think there certainly existed a mechanism for, uh, for, for moving goods around and for moving styles and iconography from place to place. And the stuff that we see in the evidence from Father Crespi's collection might be evidence of just such a thing occurring in the past. The whole story about Father Crespi and these enigmatic artifacts that start to appear from within a subterranean complex, perhaps a repository lost from some previous civilization, is totally romantic in many ways. But it's also very important for all of us to, to pay attention to because we're right on the cusp of making tremendous discoveries about our ancient past. It could well be that the Taos Cave could become a ground zero. It could be not just one of many repositories around the world. It could, in fact, be the repository where it's a crossroads of the east and the west, and it's a place, a meeting place of the above and the below and east and west, and all of ancient history and modern history converge on this one place, and now we have an opportunity to open it up. What other treasures remain hidden within the subterranean chambers of the Taos Cave? and the ancient lands of Ecuador. It may contain the keys we have to all the lost civilizations that existed before the Younger Dryas. We had a prehistoric past, which was high technology, and you can prove it, but the mainstream science simply don't want to know it. They don't look at it. And if they look at it, it's all speculation. They find explanations of it, which are not true. I am one of these persons who have been traveling 10,000 kilometers and 10,000 kilometers on every archaeological place where I was. I was there. I touched the stone. I photographed it. I smelled it. I learned about the mythology. I looked at the local archaeology. What do they say? And I make the combinations worldwide. I make these comparisons because I was there. I saw it with my eyes. And that's the difference. So all through I adore archaeology. They are in so many points definitely wrong. When we take into consideration the extraordinary artifacts that we find in Ecuador and now beyond Ecuador, and we look at all of the science that is now revealing surprising discoveries about our past, we have to say to ourselves, we are not what we've been told. We're so much more than we've been led to believe. And that as these discoveries come to light, they tell us beyond any differences of race, culture, belief, bloodlines, heritage, that we're family. We're a global family. And we have a history that we're only beginning to understand. And it's that history that opens the door to the peace of our future. And I think we owe it to ourselves to give ourselves and to give our children the opportunity to know what that history is.
Well, um, should we just get started early, Rama, and then we'll just, I can read the rest of Aurora Ray at the end, and then you can play Aurora Ray after that. Okay. All right, everybody, are you ready? It's time for music. Hmm. And, um... This is our friends. Uh, it's called Season of Light Christmas with the Tabernacle Choir and Orchestra at Temple Square for festive carols and holiday songs. All right. Well, here we go. I want, what the heck? Let me just get the sound up here a little bit. Yes, let's do that. All right, let's get it started. <clears throat> this holiday, join us for Season of Light, Christmas with the Tabernacle Choir. Featuring Harold Trumpets and the Orchestra and Bells at Temple Square. With Tony Award-winning Broadway singer Leia Salonga and world-renowned actor Sir David Suchet. The wonder of Christmas is illuminated in all who yearn for the light of Christmas love and the hope of Christmas service. The spark of our tiny effort can fill this world with light and write a story of hope and peace that never ends. This season, join Leia Salonga, Sir David Suchet, and the Tabernacle Choir and Orchestra at Temple Square in Season of Light, Christmas with the Tabernacle Choir. This program was made possible in part by Robert C. and Kate Gunn, Charles and Janet Starr, and David B. and Joanne Davies.
and gentlemen, please welcome back Rhea Salonga. Ring ting tingling too. Come on, it's lovely weather for a sleigh ride together with you. Outside the snow is falling and friends are calling you. Come on, it's lovely weather for a sleigh ride together with you. Giddy up, giddy up, giddy up, let's go. Let's look at the show. We're riding in the wonderland of snow. Giddy up, giddy up. Song of a wintry fairy land. Our cheeks are nice and rosy and comfy, cozy. You're snuggled up together like two birds of a feather would be. Let's take that road before us and sing a chorus or two. Come on, it's lovely weather for a sleigh ride together with you. There's a birthday party at the home of It'll be the perfect ending of a perfect day. There's a happy feeling nothing in the world can buy. When they pass around the cider and the pumpkin pie.
story reminds us that if we're with family, we're home. That's how it was for the Holy Family in Bethlehem on that first blessed holy night.
I have a secret to share with all of you, 50,000 of my newest, closest friends. The nativity story means something special to us as women. The journey to Bethlehem, the stable, the manger, we don't take any of that lightly. Mary is not just another character in the Bible. She is a mother, a first-time mother with a unique role and responsibility. I still remember my feelings when I learned I was expecting a daughter. Feelings that are perfectly expressed in this next song. Whether we are daughters, sisters, aunts, mothers, or grandmothers, Christmas for us includes thinking about new life coming into the world and nurturing the next generation. It's the story we all share as women, the story that goes on. So this is the tale my mother told me. That tale that was much too dull to hold me. And this is the surge and the rush she said would show. Our story goes on. Oh, I was young. I forgot that things outlived me. My goal was the kick that life would give me. And now, like a joke, something moves to let me know. Our story goes on. And all these things I feel and more My mother's mother felt and hers before A chain of life begun upon the shore of some dark sea
gentlemen, please welcome international star of stage, screen, and television, Sir David Suchet. Thank you all so very much, and a very good evening to you. What a pleasure and privilege it is for me to be with you this evening, and together with this extraordinary choir and amazingly talented orchestra. This evening, we come together to share a true story from over 80 years ago. It takes place near a region connected with my own heritage, the former Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. And it's also about people who were Jewish, like many of my own ancestors, devoted to their faith and deeply dedicated to their families. During this period, they lived in a land occupied by a foreign power. Well, not unlike the Holy Family so long ago. Indeed, it's a familiar scene in the world today, suggesting that this is a story for our time. Jewish families, among others, to flee their homes and seek refuge in land. As the light of Hanukkah and Christmas drew near, so did the darkness of ethnic cleansing. Meanwhile, 800 miles away in London, a 29-year-old English stockbroker, Nicholas Winton, was preparing for a ski vacation in Switzerland. But just days before his departure, a friend called from Prague. Nicky, he said, forget the skis. You need to see what's happening here. Nicky, the son of Jewish-German immigrants, had a background in international banking and was fluent in German and French. Long interested in world politics, he was naturally curious and immediately changed his plans. Nicky arrived in the Czech capital on New Year's Eve, and there in the throes of winter, he found sprawling encampments of refugee families, mostly Jewish, huddled in tents and makeshift huts. At best, they were trapped. 
Visas for adults were nearly impossible to obtain, much less for entire families. Some wanted to escape, and others were determined to stay. But most agreed that something had to be done to safeguard their children now, before it was too late. Well, Nicky turned this problem over in his mind. But it's not impossible, he thought. Then there must be a way to do it. Working with other organizations, a plan emerged. By special waiver, children could leave the country without their parents as long as host families abroad took them in. As word spread of the plan, parents lined the hallways and staircases of Nikki's hotel, begging for their little ones to be included. If they could get their children out of the country, they would find a way to follow them. Three weeks later, when Nikki's holiday vacation came to an end, he carried home the names and photographs of literally hundreds of children entrusted to him by their parents. Back in London, Nikki worked at the stock exchange by day and coordinated the rescue by night. To expedite the effort, he, well, he borrowed stationery from the British Refugee Committee, adding the words children's section, and calling a meeting of one to appoint himself honorary secretary. Using that title, he wrote to various governments for help. Several declined, but the British Home Office agreed. As long as Nicky provided a £50 guarantee for each child. Now that's the equivalent today of over 4,000 American dollars per child. With the assistance of his mother and a growing circle of helpers, Nicky threw himself into recruiting host families, raising funds and securing visas. For nine months, the work continued. And for nine months, children travelled by train and ferry to England. Among the most moving images of Nicky's service are parents on the train platforms at Prague Wilson Station, hiding their grief they took their children in their arms, assured them of an exciting adventure ahead, and promised to be reunited soon. Through that spring and summer of 1939, as train whistles blew and steam filled the skies, parents waved goodbye, pleading for the strength that only God could provide.
border closed. At final count, 669 children had been rescued. With few exceptions, their families perished, never to be seen again. The only record of the rescue was a scrapbook made by one of Nikki's team members. The book's pages were brimming with lists of children, emigration, passes, diplomatic correspondence, and so on. But Nikki was not focused on the past. He was thinking about the future. So the scrapbook went into the attic, and Nikki moved on with his life. He married, had three children, worked in local business and government affairs, organized assistance for the disabled and elderly, and went about doing good wherever a need was found. For some 50 years, Nicky rarely spoke of his rescue work, and when he did, it was only in passing. And that brings us here, to a setting like this one. In the months before Nicky's 80th birthday, his wife Greta found herself in the attic sorting papers, and there, in a worn leather case, she discovered the scrapbook. Well, needless to say, she was astonished. Who were these children, she wondered? And why didn't she know about them? Well, it happened so long ago, Nikki explained. Quite frankly, I haven't given the episode much thought since. As they talked... They agreed that the book and the history in it had to be preserved. And with the help of a well-known Holocaust expert, the story began to come to light. But eventually, the BBC invited Nicky to appear on a television programme called That's Life. And what happened next was a total surprise, even to Nicky himself. Here, you will see, is the list of all the children and the foster families who took them in. This is Vera Dermont when she was 10. Now she's Vera Gissick. She had no idea that Nicholas Winton had in fact arranged her rescue. But we did find her name, Vera Dermont, as she was then, on his list. Vera Gissick is with us here tonight. Hello, Vera. And uh, I should tell you that you are actually sitting next to Nicholas Winton. One more story for you. Melina Fleischmann. Melina, I believe you still have the name tag you wore around your neck when you arrived as a little girl at Liverpool. I wore this around my neck, and this is the actual pass that we were given to come to England. And I'm another of the children that you saved. Can I ask, is there anyone in our audience tonight 
who owes their life to Nicholas Swinton. If so, could you stand up, please? continually surrounded by his honorary children and grandchildren, all grateful to finally understand the story of their lives. And though Nicky was knighted by Queen Elizabeth II and often referred to as the British Schindler, he rejected adulation. I am not a hero, he insisted. I just did what needed to be done. When Nicky died at the age of 106, most of the original children have still not been found. But the known posterity of his rescued family numbered over 6,000. In time, Nicky's scrapbook was placed in Yad Vashem, the World Holocaust Remembrance Center in Jerusalem. And in that setting, his wartime service shines as it should in memory of the parents and families who sacrificed to save their children. Nikki was once asked, why did you keep the scrapbook a secret? I didn't keep it a secret, he said. I just didn't talk about it. Well, perhaps that's because Nicky knew he had more good to do in his life, more than could be contained in any book. For gifts of goodness are truly endless. As we are blessed, we bless others. And the giving goes on. During that last winter before the war, Jewish parents in Czechoslovakia were not able to celebrate Hanukkah in all the customary ways. But they knew that in the Hanukkah menorah, the single center candle lights all the others. The light of God's goodness in just one person can bring light to many, now and for generations to come. This season, what endless light will we bring to others? What stories will fill the scrapbooks of our lives? For some, it'll be helping refugees in war-torn lands. For others, it'll be visiting a lonely neighbor or even lifting up a downcast friend. But whatever we do, the spark of our tiny effort can fill this world with light and write a story of hope and peace that never ends. And in that spirit, as the choir sings the final newly written verse of the carol, once in royal David City, we invite you to sing along. And if this year you wish to dedicate yourself to sharing God's light 
through service to others. Turn on the light of your phone. Lift it up high. And let it be the symbol of his light and life shining through you to all the world. wonderful surprise. We are absolutely delighted to have with us the son of Nicholas Winter. So please join me in welcoming his namesake, Mr. Nick Winter. Thank you so much for being here, and I don't have to say a huge welcome from everyone. Nick, you are, are you not, the last of your father's three children still alive? Yes, sadly, sadly that's true. My brother died quite young, so I'm still very overcome by the evening. Uh, my sister died quite recently. Um, but I should also say there are many thousands all over the world 
you're alive because uh, the rescue that my father did. Many of them considered him to be their father or their grandfather or even their great-grandfather because he was their only living connection with their past. The rest of their family had perished. Remarkable. Absolutely remarkable. Could you tell us what you have found to be most helpful about your father's experience for you personally? Well, I guess the most valuable lesson I've learned is that each one of us changes the world every single day. Sounds kind of grandiose, but it may just be in small ways, like helping someone with their groceries or even just a smile when they need something. And of course, we also make life worse by not doing something that's needed. Uh, but my father, he believed in what he called active goodness. That is, to be a good person, we should actively do things to help others, rather than be passive, simply avoiding doing anything bad. And he spent most of his very long life helping to make the world a better place, and loved doing it. And that, to me, is the essence of the Christmas spirit. Nicky, we're so grateful to, to you for coming here, and we wish you, your family, and all those that you love, a very blessed and truly joyful Christmas. Thank you.
And the angel said unto them, Oh, fear not. For behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you. Ye shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes. Lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. Angels from the realms of glory, wing your flight over all the earth. He who sang creation's story, now proclaim Messiah's birth. Glory. 
DVD or the companion book or CD with new and expanded content, visit shoppbs.org or call 1-800-PLAY-PBS. grateful that we have this beautiful experience of music at this time of the season and uh, again thank you to St. Thomas's uh, school uh, from yesterday and then this again the Mormon Tabernacle Choir wow I know we'll have some wonderful stuff for the new year, too, I'm sure. So let me just read a little finishing touches here from Aurora Ray. Uh, This is called Spreading Light. As we transition into higher dimensional frequencies, it's important that we spread love and light to others. As we uplift each other, we raise the collective vibration of humanity. We must lead by example and be the change we wish to see in the world. Find small ways each day to make a positive difference. Send good thoughts and blessings. Smile at strangers. Volunteer. Or donate to a cause aligned with your heart. Perform acts of kindness. Those random kinds. <laughs> like that sign on the back of everybody's car. Mm-hmm. Yes. Perform acts of kindness without any expectation of reward. <laughs> Share your light <laughs> by radiating love. Release any judgments or perceptions of separation. See yourself and others as beautiful souls on a journey. Honor the divine essence within all people, even those who walk in darkness. They need your light the most. Forgive others. Forgive yourself. Let go of anger, fear, or envy. These lower vibrations cannot exist in the higher dimensions. Affirm that we are all one family, interconnected in our shared desire for peace. Keep your thoughts uplifted and vision the highest outcome for humanity. Maintain faith in our collective awakening. Turn the page here. Your loving energy makes ripples across our shared consciousness. Every positive action empowers others to shine their light too. Together, our luminous spirits will overcome the shadows Conclusion. 
as we undergo this monumental dimensional shift, now is the time to embrace the higher energies and potentials available. This transition to 5D offers humanity an unprecedented opportunity to co-create a world of peace, of harmony, of abundance for all. We must let go of lower vibrational patterns, thoughts, and behaviors in order to align fully with 5D consciousness. This requires deep inner work to transmute the shadows, embrace the totality of who we are. I heard Greg Braden say, we haven't got a clue yet. (laughs) We're getting there. We're getting there. As we clear our energy fields, we in turn help lift the collective. The time is now to spread light and love to all we encounter. Living in alignment with our highest truths allows us to be of service during this pivotal juncture on earth. We are paving the way for future generations who will only know the higher dimensional realms of existence. Together, that's something to contemplate, together through our individual and collective spiritual practices, we can uh, anchor and ground these fifth dimensional energies into the physical plane by unifying in oneness, consciousness, and activating the frequencies of divine love, we ensure heaven manifests right here and now. Our future is bright and limitless. Limitless. Let us co-create. We love you dearly. We are here with you. We are your family of light. We are the Galactic Federation. Aho, Aurora Ray, Ambassador of the Galactic Federation. And I'm passing this talking stick to my sister, Rainbird, because I know that this emerald serpent feathered one on this talking stick with all the angels, fairies, feathers, rainbows, crystals, and all of the beings of light, from the tallest to the smallest, are on this talking stick. And here it comes, because I know you know what to do with it, Rainbird. Here it comes. Uh, I can catch it. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Thank you so much. What a gift. And the whole day was just delightful, just exquisite. A lot of gratitude. Rainbird, you know, you're my inspiration. When when there's a... I I look everywhere high and low for music because you keep on saying, Music, Tara! Music. <laughs> well, you did it. You pulled it. Out. You pulled it out, and so we are so grateful. Lots of gratitude. It's definitely for the season, and it works. Hallelujah! <laughs> Hallelujah! Yes. Oh gosh. Thank you, Penny, for all that beautiful Hallelujah chorus that we got to play. Twice this week. Right, Rava? Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, it's right. And may your whole family be in a good space, have their lives be happy, and Christmas wishes to all of them. Yeah, Hope Christmas care. wishes to everyone. Yes, to everyone. Wow. The past poverty. Okay, Rama. What's this called now? This is um, six minutes of Aurora Ray. Our space buddies are coming. A simple guide to interacting with our galactic neighbors. This is a big deal. <laughs> Here we go. Countdown to the First Contact, a guide to interacting with our galactic neighbors. As more people become aware of the Galactic Federation's presence, the question arises. How can we prepare for open contact and interactions with our cosmic neighbors? Here are some guidelines to remain calm and avoid fear. Oh, our collective vibration is key. If humanity reacts with fear and hostility, it could provoke caution or even conflict with its. Meeting unknown cosmic allies with an open heart and mind will create the most positive outcome. E. Follow contact protocols. These include using light, sound, meditation, and telepathy to make friendly contact. Following established protocols helps avoid misunderstandings. Bah! Raise your vibration. Bye by increasing our personal frequency through practices like yoga, meditation, healthy living, and acts of love and service, we become more aligned with highly evolved ETS. Raising collective consciousness makes open contact more likely. Send telepathic invitations. I, by welcoming ETS through focused intention and telepathy, we indicate our readiness for interactions. Cosmic allies cannot connect if we are closed off due to fear or disinterest. Mentally inviting contact attracts friendly alliances. Oh, spread awareness responsibly. Why share knowledge of ease in a measured way to avoid undue alarm? Make clear that cosmic civilizations come in peace and are here to assist our evolution. Avoid exaggeration and fear-mongering. With the right attitude and preparations, humanity can transition to openly engaging with extraterrestrial friends in a constructive, ethical way. Avoiding hysteria and following contact protocols will enable intergalactic alliances that further our planetary ascension, channeling, and communication. While we await direct face-to-face -face meetings with extraterrestrials, many people currently communicate with ETS through a variety of indirect methods. Channeling, where an individual serves as a conduit for extraterrestrial communication, is perhaps the most common and powerful technique. Channelers enter into a meditative or trance state to connect with an extraterrestrial consciousness and receive information. This is often done intuitively and telepathically without spoken words. Alternatively, some channelers allow the cosmic entities to speak through them, conveying messages verbally or in automatic writing. 
The information transmitted during channeling sessions touches on a wide range of spiritual, philosophical, scientific, and metaphysical subjects. These messages come from advanced extraterrestrial intelligence, including the Arcturians, Pleiadians, Andromedans, Syrians, and more. While a lot of information is conveyed through channeling, the primary purpose is spiritual evolution and human enlightenment. Beyond channeling, people are also receiving extraterrestrial transmissions through dreams, visions, telepathy, and even directly downloaded into consciousness. The means and clarity of communication vary, but the essential message is that humanity has allies in the cosmos working for our collective awakening and ascension. By learning to tap into subtler planes of reality, open contact and dialogue can unfold. Looking ahead, the potential of future relationships with cosmic friends is exciting to contemplate. Though contact has so far been limited, I strongly believe our allies are gently preparing humanity for more open interaction and collaboration. As we spiritually mature and technologically advance, we will become increasingly ready to join our galactic neighbors. With time and wisdom, humanity could transition to a planetary civilization that cherishes cosmic kinship. The possibilities for shared growth through trade, communication, and exchange of knowledge are profound. Our cosmic allies likely hope we will one day be peaceful ambassadors representing humankind in the larger community of conscious beings. There are surely universal truths we have yet to comprehend. Achieving that goal requires placing trust in human potential and steering clear of skepticism. With progressive revelation, cosmic friends will illuminate new potentials. But humanity must walk its own path, neither embracing nor rejecting visitors. As we expand awareness, we can manifest our highest shared destiny. The future remains unwritten, and our allies patiently await our readiness. Though the road ahead is long, each step brings us closer to our highest ideals. If we open our minds to new perspectives, embrace our shared hopes, and act with compassion, our future will shine bright across the cosmos. As we prepare for potential encounters, acknowledging the vastness of the cosmos, we forge a path to coexist respectfully. Through shared understanding and the pursuit of peaceful collaboration, our journey toward engaging with extraterrestrial neighbors holds the promise of a brighter, interconnected future for both Earth and the cosmic community. We love you dearly. We are here with you. We are your family of light. We are the Galactic Federation. Aho. This is a message to humanity from Aurora Ray, Ambassador of the Galactic Federation. Are you going to let the greedy heating companies and their crazy high prices decide if... <laughs> One more ad for the night to top it all off, everybody. <laughs> I just know, and I think we all here know, that something big is coming. And uh, in the meantime, Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. It's really Christmas Eve. Now it is. And I know that uh, the younger ones and all the older ones, too, I mean, 
sharing gifts as much as we can. And uh, let's just say that the gift of the heart is the best gift of all. Mm-hmm. And uh, we'll call in the be abundance to cover it all. <laughs> kids like toys. <laughs> bigger kids like bigger toys. <laughs> oh, okay. And thank you, Ron. Thank you for getting to be with you and stay with you and love you and <laughs> ditto <laughs> all right sat down sat down key. 13 thank yous honey in the heart no evil tomorrow Christmas or today it's already here Christmas uh, uh, Cheryl is inviting us to come and join her it will be shorter but it's just wonderful to uh, affirm our community spirit together. And uh, she has a gift, and let's share it with her. So that number is 425 <coughs> And the PIN code is 946-7441-POUND. Uh, 425-436-6260 and 946-7441-POUND. And, um, yes, that will be uh, seven, well, about ten minutes of, if you wish, uh, of seven mountain time that would be ten minutes of nine eastern time and everything in the middle so joy to the world sat nam sat nam ji aho mitakuyasin 13 thank yous honey in the heart no evil live long and prosper aloha everyone aloha <laughs>